Welcome to It Can Be Said. My name is All Calling and Luke. I think you believe that we are now in the evening, right? Yeah, we are. This is not daytime. It's not daytime. It's not lunchtime. Not afternoon. It's the evening. And when does the evening start for you, Luke? You see, I'm going to say seven o'clock, and I didn't, I didn't understand. Like this, probably discombobulated you. Well, when I said evening starts at seven o'clock, but let me let me let me clarify why I think that is. We all, we all work in office jobs, or at least we did in the before times. And if I was leaving the office at six o'clock, I would not consider that unreasonable. But if I was leaving it at seven, I would consider that unreasonable. If I was asked to stay till seven, I would consider that unreasonable. Therefore, evening begins at seven because it's the earliest time that I can conceivably not be at work. See, I am... Um, uh, hello, Simon. How are you? I'm good. I, I, I think you're... Wor- I think, you know, this is a... Luke's analysis is kind of Stockholm syndrome for the crisis of the, in the working conditions of academics. That he I, just think goes, I, yeah. think more, I think it's more that it's a debate of form versus function. Sorry. Well, it's, it's just that, you know, oh, seven o'clock is a perfect, it, oh, 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 I have stayed a little bit late rather than, no, seven o'clock is, you know, significantly outside of your contracted hours. Yes, see, I, I, I agree with Simon here because I would say you should be leaving at five unless you've got a, a later start time, but you should be leaving at five. I would, I would always say if I, if, I, if I leave at six, that I've probably been given something I could have done before five. Like I would blame myself if I've not left before by six, but I leave before six. It's like, oh, I could have, I could have been a bit quicker on the draw, you know, blah, blah, blah. If I'm leaving at seven, or past seven, then they've given me too much and have asked me to do something at the last minute. It's their fault. I can't leave on time or I'm being made to say this late. The, again, I think this may be a bit... Yeah, again, again, let, me, let, me, let me, before we go into this, this weird form versus function thing. So, like, to me, I think it's a spectrum. Four o'clock is the earliest you can leave without leaving early. But you're leaving early at four, but not unreasonably so. No, that could be like a oh, I stayed a bit, I stayed a bit late early in a week, and I'm now going to catch catch up. Five is when you're meant to leave. Six is a point where you have left late, like late, late, late. Like you, it's not just within the normal bounds of reasonableness. Now, because of that. Four to five is late afternoon. Five to six is early evening. And I remember when I was a lad, and the you know you you know the the, the children's programs would finish, and you'd turn on the ITV for the ITN early evening news. Yeah, you wanted to get rid of all that stupid frivolous stuff. You want to get to the good stuff. Alice the birds. Sex on a stick, no, personified at five thirty-five. You'd be what? You know, you'd be what? You'd be watching the early evening news. What's his? What's Robert? What's his face reporting from Bosnia? <laughs> and then you know, then you have, then then six p.m. comes, and that's that's proper evening. 
So, like I said, like you know, if you if you are arguing that the evening starts at six, I would disagree with you, but I would respect your opinion because I I do acknowledge that there is a disagreement. You know, there are debates about whether five to six is evening, hence the early evening. Um, uh, caveats that ITV used to put on their early evening news. But like 7 p.m., dude. <laughs> Here comes the real madness. Your idea that these things aren't like measures of time that have objective meaning, but that they are based on thought. So your, your idea is... Actually, do you want to explain your function argument for the, the, the stages of the day? Well... Yeah, evening is when you relax, night is when you go to sleep, morning is when you wake up, afternoon is the bit between all that. So, so like, here's the thing, right, Luke? Okay, I'm in a bar at, at, at 11 o'clock at night. That's evening. Yes. I fall asleep at, in, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's night time? Ah, no, 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 because that's taking a nap. Are you asleep no, for more I, than two I, hours? No, I, 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 Are I, you I, asleep I, for more than two I, hours? Uh, yes, I'm going to sleep for more than two hours. Oh, well, that's night time then. Luke, well, I, right? I, I, I can provide... Look, look, okay. The problem is... <laughs> I, 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 can, I can offer you a practical example from the last 24 hours. For... Reasons not worth going into on a public forum. I ended up <laughs> having to travel on not one but two night buses yesterday from Clapham to Barking. And I can tell you, like, firstly, like when I was standing at Monument, uh, at the bus stop at Monument, watching the third bus go past, which did not have any space for other human beings. I was not sitting there going, well, this is an evening. This is a pleasant. Also, Transport for London thinks it's night because they have put on specialised night buses. Yeah, but this is the thing. Transport for London are thinking of this purely in terms of linear time. Whereas morning, morning, afternoon, night, they have functions. They have things to do. To be honest with you, as someone who has spent more time waiting for buses in London than either of you, I'm not sure Transport for London does think of things in terms of linear time. But like, I would like them to to do that, and if anything, do that more, more please. I mean, I'm sorry, but if I arrived at a train station and said the train will arrive when you feel like it might be afternoon, then that, then frankly, that's not going to be useful to anyone involved. Simon, trains don't come in the morning or the afternoon. They come at a specific Oh, yes, but that's morning or time. afternoon. You're describing a vibe almost. You're describing no. a no, you're no, describing no, no. I, I mean, a... afternoon is particularly foolish here because it the, the, the clue is in the title, right? It's <laughs> after the hour of noon. <laughs> well, I think even evening isn't Eve the setting of the sun, so like it, it ends, it's meant to end the setting of the sun, but we have approximate time for that. Here's the thing, Luke, right. The talking of trains is very apt because, like, it used to be time was based on where the sun was. So, like, noon was at where the sun was at the highest point in the sky, and then 12 hours from that is midnight. And that changed because of trains. 
because everybody in every village would have their own <laughs> definition of time they were walking around with based on where the sundial in their place, you know, when, it, when the sun would hit the highest. And that just doesn't work. Like, at the end of the day, you can't communicate to somebody whether to do something in the evening or in the afternoon or at night time if you're walking around with your own definition of these terms. They have to mean to be objective, i.e. Yeah, you, don't, you, don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't say, let's, let's go for a drink this evening and well, leave it did. at that. You said, let's do a podcast in the afternoon. I did you try to get yeah, but then, 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 Simon cancelled plans. Simon cancelled plans in the no, afternoon. No, he didn't. Simon had plans cancelled on him. There's a difference. If he thought you could do 4pm. Well, circumstances change. <laughs> You're wrong. You are so wrong. Like we, we may disagree quite profoundly about matters of war and peace, but I have never disagreed with you more. Simon, any final thoughts on somebody who you used to respect going mad? Well, I, I, it's not about... Does that make Zion? Does that make me Peter Hitchens or something? Am I now the Peter Hitchens of this podcast? Kind of, Angela. I just, I think, I mean, without going into the theory of relativity, because I don't understand it, um... Like there, there is a lovely line from Einstein that he says, of course, of course, time is relative. You know, an hour spent, you know, with, with a colleague you find tedious is a lot. It lasts a lot longer than a colleague, than an hour. I think his line is than an hour you spend with the person you love, which is like. And so which I understand that, considering Einstein treated his, the people he loved appallingly. Yeah, but he seemed to think that time passed very quickly, which is, you know. Um, I bet he thought it was evening too. <laughs> this is the exact, but I, I, so I think like I get that, that there is a relative nature of time, and I get as well that under the understandings of time are socially constructed. And I think you'd make. I think this is a very interesting modernist novel, and I and I wish you very good luck in uh, in your nomination for the Goldsmiths Prize in about twenty twenty five. But until that point. It, 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 you can see how this rather unusual explanation uh, ha- has the potential to lead to serious confusion. But I would, I would never say let's do something this evening and then not specify a particular time. That's ridiculous. You think that's deep down you know you're using the words wrong? Because, but also, like, I, I'm not saying you would never, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do the, like, this evening, shall we do it at half past seven, let's say. But yeah. like, if you open opening with "let's do something this evening," there has to be a shared understanding of what that basically means. Basically, so people, so when you kind of go, "Do you want to do a podcast this evening? What sort of time do you want to do it?" You are you yourself are working toward a basic understanding that probably they're going to suggest times between, let's say, seven and half past nine. Of like, uh, in terms of like, and so actually, it's about the importance of the shared nature of language. Can you tell listeners that I cocked up trying to arrange this particular? Hey, 
you admitted all I had to do was you cite Einstein and the purpose of language and bore you deeply to death so that you admit just <laughs> bore you down. Yes, we, we, we were initially meant to do this at 4 p.m. Well, I want to do this at 4 p.m. after Luke had agreed to do this in the afternoon. And then when, when Simon originally couldn't do it at 4 p.m., then Simon could do it at 4 p.m. And Luke was like, no, I can't do it in the afternoon. Sorry, I can't do it at 4 p.m. And I was like, but you agreed you could do it in the afternoon? Yeah, and then I said I could do it at 6. And then what time did we start, Will? Um, uh, uh, half seven because you guys were late. Yeah, no, I, I, this, is, <laughs> this is actually true. So, talking of being late, Boris Johnson's still in Downing Street, guys. <laughs> I thought we weren't talking about that. In this we were talk about it very briefly. He's still there, huh? Huh? He'll probably still be there this time next week, which we're not going to talk about in detail. He does have a questionnaire to fill in. Um, I, I'm going to make uh, one quick thing again in defense of my busy mate, Sue Gray. She deliberately, in my opinion, released her report on a Monday, which is a very unhelpful day for the government. It means it dominates the entire week's news. There were a lot of reports, there were a lot of people, analysts, saying that if you want to be helpful for um, a prime minister, you release bad news on a Thursday, Friday, would be really helpful late on a Friday. Um, when the Met released the news that Boris Johnson was, uh, had received a questionnaire about a fixed penalty notice, well, it would be Friday night. Yeah, take out the trash day. So, yeah, it also does raise the question, if you're just literally giving people questionnaires to fill in, why couldn't Sue Gray go into detail in her report? Because you're literally asking people, you know, set questions, um, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, all feels very dodgy to me. Well, I think, I mean, that's, we've sort of, obviously the Prime Minister still being in power is, well, the Prime Minister is always in power. It's like Pope. But like, um, who the Prime Minister is, you know, the Johnson is still Prime Minister. Seems, you know, it, it, it's an odd story. This is, this is a, it feels... The thing, I mean, I am becoming increasingly sure he's going to, you know, I think he's going to, he, might, he could take down a hell of a lot with him, but it feels at the moment that he's going to carry on at least, you know, for the next couple of months. I mean, partly because the problem, one of the things about this party scandal is that it's, there's a scene in The Simpsons when um, Mr. Burns goes for a medical inspection and they, they go, Ah, yes, you're healthy because literally you have every disease in the world, but in perfect balance and you can't, and the, you know, the, these germs. syndrome. Yeah. And it feels like that's what Partygate is like at the moment. There are, so, there's so much like, and we, you know, every time Pippa Korea tweets something, there's a distinct chance it's going to be another revelation of, you know, of them, you know, breaking the rules around lockdown at some point. But 
it's happened so often now that it's basically we we're at the stage now where it's basically priced in you know the uh, each of these stories is it's the impact is getting less and less johnson is surviving there is clearly a campaign around um downing street this this shadow whipping operation which is like oh we can't let the media bring the prime minister down which is strange to me but okay and that's if that's your line then fine you know and 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 and, it, and if they're not willing to release the fixed penalty notice, you know the, the news of the fixed penalty notice, if and when it comes, then I I just I just kind of feel and, and you know there's no sense at the moment that there's no sense of there being an overwhelmingly brilliant cat. It's brilliant can It's not, and I I I'm going to say this whilst also caveating that. None of the issues that this person had were anywhere more near as legally difficult. But, like, there's a real feeling of Ed Miliband around 2013, 2014. Like, everybody had kind of accepted that he wasn't really good enough at the job. You know, there was a sense inside the Labour Party that he wasn't it wasn't what they were doing. He was profoundly unspectacular. Um, but there was also a sense that nobody around him was good enough to basically go through the rigmarole of getting rid of him to to do so, which is why Labour ended up with only 232 yeah, I, seats yeah. in the 2015 election. I'm going to say it feels more like Jeremy Corbyn. Oh, Jeremy Corbyn. In the sense of um, the accusation, the charge, that Jeremy Corbyn was anti-Semitic had the minds of most Labour MPs, most not completely partisan journalists, the, the persuadable parts of the public had kind of improved after you had Muralgate, you had people in the reef down for Black September, like, you know, there were quite a few things, but at some point it was just no, like people just believed it. Um, but like, but like, you then get like other things come out that kind of even more proved what had already been proven. The thing is, once you reach a hundred percent proof, you've reached a hundred percent proof, and people have to make a decision. And if you made one decision at hundred percent proof. Being a hundred percent proof plus one doesn't necessarily change your calculus, um, and so in the same way that the Labour Party just got stuck with Corbyn, even though it was quite clear that the anti, anti the accusations of anti-Semitism and other issues had just completely destroyed um, his popular appeal. I think that's what's happened with Johnson. It's like. Partygate is the reason Johnson's leadership is probably going to fail. Um, but that was true. That that was as much. I think the last time his position significantly changed was in the middle of January, when it was clear that he that when it was proven beyond doubt that he himself had been involved in some of these parties. Everything else has just been has just been adding wood to the same fundamental funeral pyre. 
Mm. And the Tory, the Tory MPs weren't willing to move then. They're not moving, willing to move now. They're probably not going to be willing to move in February. Um, sorry, they'll move in March even. Um, this is just going to keep on and on and on. And I, and I think, you know, given how poorly Sunak and Truss are doing at the moment, there's probably a decent chance he survives the next election, which, much like what happened with Corbyn, is probably going to be pretty bad for the Tory party because... Yeah, because I was just about to say, well, that means Prime Minister Keir Starmer then. I mean, probably, probably, it has to be said, propped up with some sort of deal with the Lib Dems and the SNP. Oh, no, not, not, on the, not on the current basis of the polls. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a hell of a long, it's a hell of a long way back in terms of seats. Um, and you've got to think, you've got to think as well that at least a portion of Tory voters will come back. Because this is the thing. It's not like Labour is taking huge chunks of support off the Tories. Just a lot of people are moving into the underside. Yeah, but, but, but that's, that's based on those Tory voters thinking it won't be Johnson in the next election. I, 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 I think, like, if Johnson's out of the Tory party, I mean, un- unless Johnson has revived, which I don't think you can rule out because Johnson ha- ha- is, is a very odd politician with great, a- able to reach great depths, able to come back from great depths, as he's proven throughout his career. But, like, if Johnson is, is as loathed as he is now, those Labour Tory switches who are currently saying don't know, or those Tory potential Lib Dem switches who are currently saying don't know, they will not vote for the Tory party because this is going to get worse. Because, you know, you, you're going you, you, to have the, 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 the police's verdict on the fixed notice penalties. And Downing Street have said they will release the details of who as employees will be have received them. Whether that includes Carrie Johnson is not, it, we don't know. Well, does it include the Prime Minister? Is he an employee of Downing Street? I, I, I think they said they will let people know that if he gets one. They seem, I, I, they, there have been some weird statements going around from people close about his unique legal position. I get the feeling they're trying to resurrect and they may try and do this to the police. <clears throat> They're trying to resurrect what was briefed in November, December, which is that the rules don't apply to Downing Street because it's Crown Estates. Yeah, good Not, luck with that. Yeah, but the thing is, like, but it might it might work legally. But... It, well, this is the thing I was going to say. It's like, it's not something you can say in public, but it might be enough to get out of any fixed penalty notices. That might. Yeah, but surely, is, though, surely, even if they didn't announce it, it would leak. That, that was the reason why. You would assume. No. So. I mean, I mean, you you would think if if that was a de- if that was a valid defence, the police wouldn't have investigated. I mean, I've got to say this this that does smack very much of uh, of Lionel Hurts. It has to be said. <laughs> so I, th- I think there's a there's a couple of things to sort of be. Um, so I said, can, I, can I just say one thing, actually, before you go into that? I just want to say, so Johnson keeps saying it's unique position, 
to have uh, Downing Street be a home and no, a place of work. And it's like, and like people come on and say, oh, well, we're all working from home. It's like, okay, yeah. Okay, you know, professional middle class people. We, we, yes, we all were very inconvenient having to work from home. But in a more profound way, Ollie Johnson, you're meant to be Mr. Red Wall. You're meant to be Mr. Saffron for the lower middle class. There are loads of corner shops. Yeah, I'm going to say, how many people live above the shop? Live above yeah, the yeah, loads. Well, that was the, that's the joke Mrs. Thatcher used to make. She used to say, you know, I've moved, I've moved from, I've gone from moving from living above the shop to living above the shop. Um, and and like you know, there are these things called doors. Um, that make it very clear what is the shop and what isn't the shop. I mean, it's the same but, was, but, but was the edge of that door cut off, Will? <laughs> so, yes. Um, this is the thing with Johnson. He is very good at transcending his class until he's cornered. And then, like, how clueless he is comes out. Anyway, Simon... <laughs> Yeah, I, I think this, uh, the, the other compar- historical comparison I would make um, is with Nick Clegg, right? Like the Lib Dems, by in the sort of if you talk to people in the Lib Dems in sort of 2013, 2014, it was like obviously we know Nick Clegg is slightly less popular than literally being on fire, but you know we think we still think that you know we're going to get a local, you know we still think we're going to get local results and end up with about half the number of seats, and and then. Everybody, yeah. Then the electorate was asked to vote and vote in 2015. They went, oh, yeah, we all they all remembered. Oh, yeah, we all loathe Nick Clegg. And the Lib Dems ended up with eight MPs. And I think that's the that's why I don't in the end, I cannot believe that the Tories would keep Johnson on until the next election, because I don't basically think they're politically as politically naive as the Lib Dems were. Also, just Nick Clegg has got even less popular since he left office. Which I mean, is impressive. Like, yeah, you've gone to work for Facebook. Meta. You've song. Should David Cameron give it you back? Oh, can I, can I give you my, my Facebook analysis? Go on. Does it involve Nick Clegg being shot out of a cannon? No, no. It's like, why is Facebook crap now? Like, why is it crap? And I realise it's crap because it is crap. In a sense of, you break down the functions of Facebook, there is always a better website or app to do it. So if it's sharing photos, well, Instagram's better for that. If it's sharing your opinions, which is what I used to use my news news feed for, Twitter is better for that. If If it's like messaging friends, organizing friends, you know, all that jazz, then WhatsApp is better for that. And WhatsApp is also better for making phone calls, which used to be a separate thing. Um, If it's um, organizing events, you remember when we were at university, Facebook events, we did a default thing you would use. Well, now Facebook's too formal for like a birthday party. You would just do that for a WhatsApp group. For a more formal events, you'd use something like Eventbrite or Skiddle. Um, what else is there? 
Um, I think I think that's everything. I think that's everything. I had to, uh, I think that's everything. All the fun. Yeah, but Facebook. will you ignoring the fact that but, the Facebook is legacy technology? Well, no, 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 Let me finish my point. So what happens is everybody who cares about a good experience online gravitates towards these other formats. What you have is people who don't care but appreciate the convenience of having an having all these inferior products in one place. So Facebook has gone from being a cutting edge of online technology to being the co-op. You know, it's like, oh, it's all very mediocre. Uh, sorry, and I mean co-op in their kind of like Midlands guises where they have like all different types of shops and what, and what, under one roof. Like, oh, this is all very mediocre, but it's so convenient that this mediocrity is concentrated. Um, and that's why it's full of really unpleasant people because it's, it, you know, it is online boomers. It's people who don't have the skills or the taste to go where things are good. It's just the dregs of online experience. So are you saying, Will, that back in the day, all the anti-vaxxers and the neo-Nazis and the conspiracy nuts used to hang out at the co-op? Well, they did in my time. <laughs> um, but don't worry about Facebook. Well, Facebook is the past. You've got to be looking towards the future. It's the metaverse, baby. But, but that, I have to wear a VR headset to buy milk. That's the thing. Like that said, desperate attempt to make Facebook seem cool. But like that stuff. Like I, 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 can't, I, saw, uh, I was watching the Escapists um, earlier this week, which is like a video game uh, channel, and one of them made the point that was like, "Hang on." Facebook owns like the best VR headset on the market, and they are producing good VR games that look good. And the metaverse looks bad. It looks really, really bad. Now, I don't think virtual reality is a mainstream thing anyway, because even the likes of us would struggle with it because we're old and we're in our thirties. But like. I just feel like, actually, the reality of the situation is Facebook as a thing is a, has become a jack-of-all-trades master of none. And obviously, Meta as a company owns WhatsApp, owns Instagram. But you know Zuckerberg does not get a hard-on from those two companies' success. He wants his own baby to be successful. What do you think, Simon? Uh, I think that... I really, uh, sorry, I really don't want the image of Mark Zuckerberg with a heart on for anything. <laughs> I, I, I think uh, for, for reasons that you are discussing, A, a client of mine, and the main comparison I can come up with is another client of mine, uh, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to quietly tap out of this discussion. All right, this all right. Simon is pleading in the corporate fifth. I absolutely am. Right. Simon, blink twice. If you think Brian <laughs> A is bad, blink three times if you think client B is bad. 
Oh my um, god, he's taken off his own eyelid. Yeah. Go on here, you Luke. You muted youself. Oh, oh my god, he's gouged his eyes out. That's corporate loyalty for you, people. Oh yeah. <laughs> he deserves a raise for that if somebody's listening. Yes, I do. I agree with I agree with that. And 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 I'm not going to make any other comments on the subject other than yes, more money, please. <laughs> but no, back, back, back on topic. Um, yeah, we, we will turn to Boris Johnson being a wrong one at some point in the future. Um, talking of wrong ones, um, uh, 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 Miss Dix has left the building. Dix out, everybody. Um, Simon, how on a scale of one to ten, how happy are you? I mean, about six, not because I'm not, not because I don't think it's a good result, but it's the same. It, this has felt necessary for so long. She has overseen, and we, we did obviously around the, the, the murder of Sarah Everard, we did long discussions about Met and its various failures. Um, and I don't think, I think basically everything, I, I, I stand by everything I said in that really. Um, and it's quite obvious that she has failed to lead her organisation in a way that was adequate for so long. You know, I mean, I, I, I you know, the, the, the line to, to sort of misquote The Simpsons, the line I put when the story came out was, why, why now? Why not 17 years ago? Which is how long ago it was that she was the person with overall command of the operation that saw um, Jean-Charles de Menezes gunned down in Stockwell Tube Station. Now, you know, I'm not saying I, 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 I've used those terms quite carefully. I, I, I understand it was probably an accident. But, you know, if you're the person running that organisation, should you be a person who's also then put on basically an escalator to the top of the most important job in British policing? Um, you know, it's, it's a... I, I don't think she has... I don't think she's ever really been good enough you know, she has, I think she's come close to bringing the Metropolitan Police into disrepute. There is a, you know, there is a fundamental breach of trust now between the British people and their police services, I think particularly in London. Uh, you know, and as the most prominent police officer in the country, other than the ones in line of, line of duty, obviously, uh, she, she bears a response. Not, not British. Um, well, no, okay, British creative. But Armitage, it's Armitage, then. But it's that's, like that's that's a British version of just dread. But she has to she has to bear some response. She has to bear some responsibility. Um, I thought her resignation statement, in which she basically went, "Wah wah wah, I I'm I'm wonderful, and I can I should have been allowed to stay on forever." But, but not mean Sadiq Khan did just wasn't going to willing to give me the chart another chance. You know, so she hasn't had hundreds of chances already was was pretty pretty poor um i also by the way thought the today program interviewing um on the morning after her um resignation uh the head of the police union who you know don't trust them for to a month of sundays and some conservative member of the london assembly who just used it to bash to the khan was a very odd um pair of interviews to do about this very significant story but that's that's something completely different I can, I, can i can i talk about that actually because i think this is, is this is worth saying because 
I really hate Sadiq Khan. <laughs> because, like, I just feel like he plays the game to win. And, like, I know you can't take the politics out of politics. But, like, he was so gun ho to defend Dix um, until he was dragged, kicking and screaming, kind of issue a fairly mealy-mouthed condemnation of her. And it obviously says a lot about her that she couldn't even accept that and couldn't even comply with that. But, like, it does say something about just the idiocy of the people that that he is ranged against, that they have let him get away with being presented as a person who forced her out, where from my my read of it, that he has clearly responded to pressure from the London Assembly, who has been really, no, really aggressive for Cassandra Dix over the past a few months, forced her to issue an, a, an investigation into Johnson because she was going to be uh, talking to them the day those investigations were announced. She was they had just announced that they were going to demand the mayor um, explain in more detail what he meant by putting her on final notice um, just before she announced she was quitting. So, like, I, I think personally the London Assembly forced her out, but, you know, the idiocy of the various forces involved means that Khan gets to take credit. And, like, this is not a partisan point because... Literally everybody in the London Assembly wanted her out. And, and I do feel like this is a sign of how important the London Assembly is and why the other mayoralties would, would do well to have a version of it themselves. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, dis- I don't disagree. I don't disagree with any of that. Cressida Dick had to go. She should never have been appointed to the post in the first place. And as we've talked, but as we've talked about on the podcast before, the one thing I will say slightly in her defense is that the, the Met is broken as an institution. Um, and I don't think replace I don't think replacing its head. Is going to solve that problem. We've talked about this before. The Met needs splitting into two organisations. Ah, can I can I, can I interrupt you on that one? Oh, no. Not two. How many would you split it into? Well, I, I, I don't have a number in my head, but here's the thing, right? <laughs> the Met has 33,000 police officers, right? <clears throat> with a higher population density than, than anywhere else in the UK. So you would expect it to have less per the co- area it's covering. Scotland has just over 17,000 because of the idiotic murder of all the police forces, right? You, you look at, no, to so the West Midlands, Greater Manchester, just over 7,000. West Yorkshire, just, just under 6,000. Merseyside, 4,000. Kent, 4,000. 
South Wales, 3,000. Um, South Yorkshire. How do you know this off the top of your head? I, I, I've got it in front of me. Just under 3,000. No, like, you know, okay, you, you should have lied. I was finding that really impressive. <laughs> you know, like, you know, what you need, in my opinion, if you remember, like, people compare Greater London to New York, but, like, Greater London is not New York City, it's New York State. You, there is not one police force for New York State. What you need is what you were about to talk about, Luke, which I, I agree with, which is you strip out the, the national functions of the Mets and you give them to a bespoke national police force. And, you know, maybe you actually give them the responsibility of policing, like, the centre of London, where, like, the House of Parliament, Downing Street, Book Palace, you know, blah, blah, blah. But then I would have four, five, six police forces in London that deal with the rest. Because, actually, no, London is a very diverse area. It's a very large area. And, actually... The type of police force that would suit North London is very different. The type of police force that would suit South London or East London or West London, no, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But like, there is no justification for like the Met being 33,000 strong, where when looking at this, the average police force in England is something like two, two and a half thousand police officers. It's just way too big. And that's even if you factor in stripping out its national functions. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 the classic problem, isn't it? It's almost like it, it, it's it's the root cause problem of British geopolitics that London is just too much. Um, and because I think the problem you have, if you if you were to split, you know, let's say you create a north, south, east, and west London police force. I, obviously, I'm not saying that is your model, but it's, you know, you then that have be, that would indeed be my model. But it's it you have you do just have the problem that London, you know, London is an area that you cross like you can cross very quickly. You know, you it's a it's a very connected place. You know, I understand I understand that it's 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 got a mass it's got a very sizable population. The provinces are connected too, Simon. Yeah, no, no, I, I accept that, but I do. I mean, yeah, okay. To be fair, that's a fair point, and like, yeah, maybe, maybe. So, so what I think you might end. have is you might have, you might literally have a London Transport Police to cover the the underground, because that's that's yeah. why there's a Transport Police to, to kind of deal with this issue. Yeah, the, the, yeah, because the, yeah, the underground, the, yeah, the London, basically a, a a police force for TfL. Mm. Um. You could hopefully order them to send more night buses to Romford, the N, along the N15 route to Romford Market at three in the okay, morning. Okay, this is this is the second time we've done this. You live in public transport paradise, Simon. No, it's a fair you point. You live with what you live. No, in the no, 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 no. He doesn't. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. Citizen, no, I, 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 no, I, I, hang on, Simon. Cities in a province live in. In the provinces live in the public transport paradise. 
because we have these we don't have as good public transport as london but we have cheap taxis so in london let me finish Luke, let me finish yeah, well, hang on, you, you can jump into anybody else's points, Will. You won't let, you won't let us. Okay, I'm I'll talking. Let you explain this in a second. Let me just finish this point. I'm talking. Just... Luke, stop it. Let me finish the point because I can't explain what I'm saying. Well, you don't, you don't let anybody else finish, Will, so mm. I'm not going to let you. Luke, let me just finish this point and I'll let you in, otherwise it won't make sense. It, no, if, I, if, if you miss a train in London or a bus in London, you're stuck. You can't get a taxi because the tax will cost you like 50 quid. Whereas you can actually do quite long journeys by taxi in most English cities and it won't cost you too much. Anyway, I'm sorry for interrupting you, Luke. You go on. Well, I, I mean, I, I, when I've been in London, I don't find that all. I think London, I think London taxis are a goddamn miracle. Yeah, but you don't live in a city, Luke. You, you're used to living in like small towns where, and small towns are expensive. Yeah, well, London cabbies are relatively cheap. They're usually friendly. They will go out of their way to drop you at the front door or wherever it is. So going. And miraculously, they know a city as complex and intricate as London. So, so you I don't did... have to explain to them where you're going the whole time. You just give them an address and they get you there. So I did an hour journey yesterday for 25 quid. I think that'd be, what, 15 minutes in London? Uh, it's not quite. I mean, Uber makes these things cheaper. Well, but this like, was a tax. This was a taxi. So. It was a full taxi. I mean, I think the thing that I think that the I actually think that you're both wrong. Um, and I, I, I well, this isn't the point, and 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 I, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> but I think the the I think unless you live like Luke, your experience of London is probably primarily Zone One, which is a sort of you know, yeah, a, is a normal size. Like, if you are living as most Londoners do in Zone Three or Zone Four, like, it's like the the reason that the the reason I, th I like I take on board many of your points. Like, I am I in many ways I'm I'm complaining I am carping about a system that is you know it would be the envy of most cities in this country. Believe you know having having spent time in the last 12 months in cities like Leeds or Bristol, which, you know, are big cities. The transport system is far better here. The problem is London is a whole county. It's a, it's a really sizable area. So whereas, um, you know, if I get, if I was, if I, when I was stuck in, in Bristol and I was, I was staying in the suburbs, getting a cab, it just isn't that far. Like the, there are, there is no city that is the sheer scale. Like, but if I'm stuck in the middle of London, and I need to get home to somewhere in zone four, as I as I did, like, I can't just jump in a cab. I can't, like, go, oh, maybe I'll walk half the way there and then pick up something. Like, that's the, the... And it's not a... Like, it's just the reality that London is just massive. And outside, you know, most people... You know, zone one, the thing we think of as touristy London is not where most people live and not where most people... And it's why the night buses are, you know, the few night buses you do get are you know are, are are so busy and and i hope although i don't use it a lot obviously i would have used it last night you know i really hope that we do end up having the night tube back because certainly on a sat friday or saturday night that kind of, that have it having you know that's what a, we need you know if you want a proper sort of globalized city with a sort of proper 
uh, transport system, having a, having a tube system that runs through the night is is a really valuable resource. Yeah, so that, that was the point I was going to get at, is that if, if you miss something in London, it, it is so much more catastrophic than if you do it in, a, in, a, in a, say, in Birmingham or Manchester or Liverpool, because it is much more plausible to just get a taxi, even if it's quite a long journey. Like, I've missed my last tram from Birmingham to Wolverhampton, which is a pretty long journey and a journey comparable to a long, you know, several zone journey in London. And you can just jump into a taxi and it's not, it's not, it's not going to break the bank. Yeah. It's, oh God, that's going to be a really annoying evening, annoying evening rather than just, yeah, that's not plausible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I say like lack of trams in London as well, because trams are awesome. We, we, yeah. the, the West Midland expansion uh, is 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 progressing. The Wolverhampton tram now links up to the, the to the front door of Grand Central, which means if you want to go into the heart of Birmingham city centre, you no longer have to go through New Street. You can just get the uh, tram, and it's wonderful. It's so wonderful. Um, anyway, Luke, sorry for interrupting you. Um, do you have anything else to say? On no, this topic? no, I'm good. But um, what would you do? Like, would you keep the Met as one unified police force or uh, covering London, or would you divide it up into regions? Um, no, I'd, 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 like I said, I'd split it in two. I'd give it like its national policing function to a proper national to a proper uh, national police force, rather like the rather like the rather like the Australian system where you have federal, you know. We wouldn't call it federal, but we have federal police or like serious organised crime, counterintelligence, counterterrorism stuff. So you think the SNP were right to merge all the police forces in Scotland into one police force? I think they were right to... I think they were right... I think they were onto something in that you needed to reduce the number. Because it was creating an awful lot. Because people, I think, rightly criticise the SNP a lot for the way this was handled. But you have to remember, like things like having a separate police force for crime management didn't make sense. Things like having a separate police force for the borders didn't make sense. And <coughs> Police Scotland has actually delivered fairly substantial savings in terms of the admin. I think what you could have done is what you could have done is broken it down into three or four separate forces. Now, whether you do that for London, I have no particular, I have no particular expertise. I don't particularly have an opinion, but it's just that the Met, as it's currently constituted, doesn't work, and it can't work. Now, talking on something, the SNP haven't done right. Oh, thank you. Well, see, we're all friends here. Um, how go the pensions, Luke? Hey, really, as an academic, it must be it must be nice to see somebody else get into a men, uh, into a mess about pensions. Well, as with Simon, I am not going to talk about that. I, mean, um, I am I am pleading the corporate fist. I mean, it's quite funny actually for me because, like, I I um yeah, I, what's it like? What's it like as a former member of uh, the academic world? Well, looking really, in on this burning dumpster fire. You don't remember, it's weird for me because because Wolverhampton University was a former polytechnic, 
we our, we weren't part of universities uh, superannuation scheme we were part of the west midlands local government scheme which i was not paying into because i had to pay for my 20s um um so um i i've not had a i think I've, i think i've got like one year of paying into um the you know no, your your pension scheme which I have to find the details at some point to get like the 50p or give me when I retire every every month. <laughs> but um, but no, if I had been paying into a pension these past five years, it would have been a completely different scheme, which meant all the industrial action never hit Wolverhampton because it wasn't anything to do with us. Okay. Um, so yeah, no, no, we were complete. We were we were like an island, you know, in in in, in stormy in stormy weather. Well, much yeah, like, okay. Much like Scotland when England's paying for its pension. Yeah, so the, the, this has been this has actually been rumbling on for a couple of weeks now, and we probably should have touched on it earlier. But Boris Johnson decided to be Boris Johnson. Um, um, the you know the SNP in theory want to hold another independence referendum sometime before the end of twenty twenty three. They're a little bit vague on exactly when. In that period, it's almost certainly not going to happen. One of the things they're doing in um, sort of maintaining this kayfabe that there's going to be a second referendum is they are updating the... They are getting Scottish civil servants to sort of update the prospectus on independence. (coughs) And there are a number of different minefields here, but one of them... And interestingly, it never became much of an issue in 2014 that I can remember, although if anybody else can remember differently, correct me. But one of those is one of the minefields is pensions. Mm-hmm. And who would be liable to pay pensions in an independent Scotland? Now, there has been Ian Blackford actually started this after, as with so much. Uh, with SNP nonsense, Ian Blackford started it with a claim that the UK government would have to pay the pensions of existing pensioners um, once Scotland became independent, which is a fundamental misreading of how the pension scheme works because he seemed to think or he seemed to imply that he thought that individual national insurance contributions sort of were like an individual savings account that tracked the individual. That's not how national insurance worked at all, Ian. Um, and and I, let, Nicola Sturgeon let, went quiet let, let, for a bit. Sorry, then Luke, Nicholas... sorry, Luke, let me just make this most in the most brutal way possible. If no, if you, you know, we were talking about me having a pension, if I was to die. Be like, I think it's like a thousand quid I've got in the universal suspension scheme. That that would be transferred to my heir, whoever I put down in my non-existent will, because all I have is that and debts and some pretty cool video game systems um, to to give to somebody. Whereas. All the you know, tens of thousands of pounds I have paid in national insurance over the 20 years I have worked, yeah, that doesn't go to anybody. That doesn't track me. That has been paid to like look after existing pensioners. It's not, 
It's called national insurance because it's pooling the the risk across generations and across people. This, I, I think this is sorry. Sorry, I know Luke. I, I'll let you come back here. But I think this is Simon. You know he doesn't no, like it, Simon. This you is go a really. Ahead. It's, you go I, ahead. I I think that the thing that like I have literally had this argument with you know members of my family who've kind of gone. You know, I've paid in for my national insurance. You know, I have a right to my pension. It's like because we don't call it what it is, which is it is a tax. And when um, we know the NI uh, rise is going to come in in the next couple of months, like I think people think of and 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 Gordon Brown did. This is not a this is not even a party political point. You know, the the current the Conservatives, the current guy. But you know, Gordon Brown basically tried to pretend that he wasn't putting up income tax as he was putting up national insurance. It is an income tax. There is really no other, like, you know, it is not, it, it, you know, calling it national insurance means that people think that the money they have paid in guarantees them anything rather than what it is actually doing, which is trying to make sure that there is a pension for the people who are currently retired, which is why raising the retirement age is, in, like, is, is not an invalid thing to do. It, we are just, it is just a tax. Um, and it's not a wrong thing to do, in my opinion, but yeah. But right. it's, right. I, that, there, was a reason I, I, there was a reason I used the word valid. Yeah. Um, and mostly because I didn't want to get into that debate because, you know, <laughs> I've, I've got ironing I need to do. But like I, um, but I, but the whole, but, and then, then that then allows someone like Ian Blackford and the SNP to stand up and spout this absolute nonsense. But the reason that that absolute nonsense is, is taken seriously by anyone at all is that a lot of people do think of national insurance like it is a personalised bank account with the money they've paid into it, even though that's absolutely not how it works. Actually, Will, you you pointed out there is precedence for this, and I didn't realise this. Yeah, I just want to explain that. Yeah, there is precedent for this. So um, obviously the Irish Free State, um, when it was created, this is after the creation of national insurance, in 1922 and Ireland had to just pay you know, the Irish Free State had to pay for pensions um, and I think this has been put to the SNP and they just dismiss it as Ireland had only been paying into it for 10 years and it's like oh, 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 oh. I, think, I think to me the, the, the other precedent that is also interesting is what happened when we left the EU because the SNP will say, well, well, Britain paid for pensions as part of the EU thing. But that actually cuts against the point they're trying to make. Because what Britain ended up having to do was pay for the pensions of British people who worked for the European Union, who worked for the Commission or the Council. And that was because it was like, yeah, they were working for the whole EU but they're your problem, you're leaving, therefore you pay for them. So actually, not only does the SNP have to pay for pensions in Scotland, they're probably going to end up having to pay for British, for the professional pensions of British state employees of EU state employees who live in Scotland 
So this is going to be like, and like, and like that will be subject to negotiation. That's not that's not an automatic, but that that will be the likely culmination. But like, the the, the basic problem is is like the 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 the, the SNP is so the, the the history of this is, is that the, the uh, Steve who was the Lib Dem who was the pension Steve Minister? Webb Steve, Steve Webb. Webb Steve Webb misspoke in the select committee. And it was such a catastrophic misspeaking um, that he was immediately made to re- correct the record by his civil servants. Because obviously, say if any of us moved to Spain, and when we retire, we would still get our pension. Um, and I think what he thought, what he was trying to say is, if an English person moved to an independent Scotland, we would pay their pension or what he was thinking of. But that would not mean that people who are residents of Scotland at the point of independence get England to pay their pension. Now, how you deal with people like Luke who are English but live in Scotland, how you deal with Scottish people who 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 live in England? Yeah, that 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 will be complicated. But your average Scot who is who has never left Scotland, you know, was born in Scotland, has lived in Scotland, will die in Scotland. We ain't paying for their pensions if Scotland leaves the UK. It's as simple as that. This is not complicated, guys. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think I think Alex Massey put this quite well. Let's say for let's say for let's say for ease of the maths that pension liabilities for the UK are hundred billion pounds a year. No idea whether that's true or not. That is actually pretty close to what it is, actually. But believe it or not. Yeah, but let's but let's and let's say that a remainder UK now has ninety two now is collecting ninety two billion pounds worth. Of national insurance to pay those pensions. Do you really expect them to pay 100 billion pounds worth of pensions with 92 billion pounds worth of NI receipts for 30 years? The thing is, right, if this was like a part of Spain or a part of France or a part of Germany or a part of Belgium or a part of Italy trying to break away, you could understand why they may not be sure how engaged we might be, and particularly with France and all the weird things France has done with its former colonies. But, like, we have made it clear over, over almost a, no, 100 years this year that when we're out, we're out. Uh, we don't care anymore. Uh, we, like, we literally saw Ireland we plunged into civil war on our doorstep and we did nothing. Like, can you, can you imagine? Can you imagine the year Algeria got independence? If that had broken into civil war, what do you think the, the French would have gone back into that in a second? Well, in fairness, well, it did. And the French left anyway, so it's not a good example. Okay. I take that back. 
But you know what I mean, though. The French, <laughs> but are, yeah, um, basically, the French but basically, are more basically, one point three million French people just went. Oh, I guess we better find somewhere else to live then. But, but I, I meant more like a. Sorry, I, I should clarify. I meant more like a not Algerians, but Algerian versus the French people. I meant the Algerians divided into two evenly backed factions. The French could could. Uh, yeah, again, that, that kind of did happen. Okay. I, 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 I will see superior knowledge, but like... Well, no, in fairness, I was because I've just finished listening to um, A Savage War of Peace, and if no one's ever read A Savage War of Peace, go away and read it now. That's um, Alistair Horne's masterpiece but like, on the Algerian Revolution. But why, why the SMP or, like, Irish nationalists Think we're going to have this really involved role in their countries post independence? It's just like no, no, that's not the way this works. We just leave and wash our hands and leave you to pick up the pieces. That's our yeah. moves. We are the oh. pull-out kings. Speaking, with the best. Speaking of good books, oh. how are you getting on with um, how are you getting on with German mail? I have. I'm gonna. I'm probably gonna start that this evening because I need to finish the other thing. But like, I think the other thing is that I. I don't know because you know I've not read all. But I don't think Michael Collins was you know sitting around going, ah, oh, we'd like there to be an independent Ireland, but you know only if we can you know maintain our no maintain our links with the British welfare state. It's like no 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 this no. Is, this is. This is the this is this this is the fundamental this is the fundamental problem with the SNP. This is the problem with the the case the SNP is trying to make. Are things really bad enough that you genuinely want independent that people in Scotland genuinely want independence with all the stuff that would bring? No. So we've got to try and soft soap it that we can have all the advantages of being a separate country with none of the disadvantages. Mm. Most of it this way, like if Britain had been a a net recipient of EU, <coughs> even with even with all the unhappiness caused by uh, migration from Eastern Europe, the referendum would have been lost. Yeah, of course, because that that was the thing of that was the way you could defeat the economic argument of. Yeah, well, we're giving ten billion pounds of our money to to the Europeans to spend on whatever they want to spend it on elsewhere. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I mean, yeah, this is the thing. I mean, I, I have became ever more convinced Scottish independence isn't going to happen in any of our lifetimes. I'm equally convinced Northern Ireland will stay in the UK. We'll talk about your Northern, Northern Ireland in a second. Because fundamentally, and it's not um, our last thing we'll be talking about Ukraine. Fundamentally, borders in the Western world have become very rigid and fossilized, and it's just too much effort to change them. Like it is kind of a miracle Czechoslovakia actually had managed to separate so easily. Um, um, likewise, that Germany managed to unify so easily. But like I think now, even border adjustments that would make sense 
I just don't think they're likely to happen. And and I don't think Northern Ireland or Scotland, leaving the UK makes sense. I think they're better off in the UK. Um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, any any final things to say for Fitbar Corner, Luke? No. So on Northern Ireland, just an update. There's no government. Yay! Well, you say yay sarcastically. The way the Northern Irish executive has been behaving, I think that yay might be sincere. To be <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, I should, I should clarify, there is still a government. There's just not... It, it, it's it's um it's it's you know the Futurama Nixon where uh, Ag, uh Nixon's on Agnew's uh, where you have Agnew with no head. The you know <laughs> the North London executive is like uh, uh reanimated Agnew where it's just running around um not knowing what to do because the way it now works is the is the government gets to continue but there's no um no executive office. So Paul Gavan, the surprisingly long-lasting First Minister of Northern Ireland, was finally told to quit by his um, by the guy who replaced the guy who may be his dad, for all I know. I should probably clarify, that's a joke. Edwin Poots, please don't sue us. Um, we know Paul Given isn't your son. He's just your protege. Um um, and so obviously that means automatically Michelle O'Neill has to resign because if the if the first minister resigns then the deputy who comes from the second biggest party also has to resign automatically um, but the, the various ministries still continue, can't pass new laws then though which hilariously means the DUP who was not a fan of the coronavirus legislation has managed to contrive to mean the coronavirus legislation has to continue beyond the point all the other parties agree it should finally end. Do you mean to tell me that the DUP didn't think it all the way through? I, yeah, it sounds like that, doesn't it? So we, we, we should. I'm going to briefly explain why how this came to pass. So obviously. The DUP opposed an Northern Ireland protocol. Oh, see, Simon heard. Simon heard about the Protestants, and he just storms off. Um, the DUP um, opposed Northern Ireland protocol, and as I was saying, the DUP opposed Northern Ireland protocol. And, um, but unfortunately, the North Island Protocol passed and they are responsible for implementing it, which they started to do. Now, here's where it gets a bit weird. So, North DP controlled the agriculture uh, department in North Island Executive. It was Edwin Poots, the notorious Edwin Poots. Who had who was responsible for getting civil servants to implement all the var various checks on border crossings on on stuff coming in to Northern Ireland? A loyalist activist who may or may not have been funded by the DUP 
brought a legal case, a novel legal case, and my tongue is so firm in my cheek, it is piercing the skin, that Edwin Pooch had not complied with the Good Friday Agreement or the architect, legal architecture of power sharing because the decision to implement the Northern Ireland Protocol was, was something that changed the constitutional status of Northern Ireland, and he had not ran it by the Northern Ireland Executive. The way it works is, in power sharing, the Northern Ireland, the various departments of the Northern Ireland Executive have a lot of leeway to do what they want, but anything that's contentious, anything that's going to change the constitutional status of Northern Ireland, you are meant to bring it to the full executive. Basically, just stop, you know, if you no, know, say you have a Sinn Fein education minister, no, they 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 can't go off piste and just say, okay, all lessons are now going to be in Irish. Um, you know, that type of radical change would have to be put to the full executive. Now, obviously. Edwin Pooch made no such decision to have the proto protocol. That is something that was decided in Westminster. You know, the government that the DUP thinks should have sovereignty over Northern Ireland, deep side the parliament, the DUP thinks should have sovereignty over Northern Ireland. Um, it is probably an international treaty, which the Northern Ireland Assembly executive, let alone the assembly, cannot change. But on this technicality, Edwin Pooch decided that actually, no, what he, the, the, the orders he'd been given to customs port staff for over a year, no, actually, those orders were illegal. He had made a mistake, and <laughs> he was going to tell them to not actually fo follow the law when it became the protocol. So he gave the order for them to stop checks. This was long rumored to be happening based on the court case I just outlined. Po and we should, we should say, so, so the, uh, uh, the, the bit I missed out on this thing was, is the reason you couldn't take it to the executive to get approval was because the DEP would say, no, we don't like the protocol, therefore this must be rejected. So the DEP are saying that a law from the parliament they think should be sovereign over Northern Ireland cannot be implemented by the Northern Ireland executive because the, the minister who, their minister for agriculture is responsible for implementing it, forgot to ask the executive for permission before implementing it, and the executive can't give permission retrospectively for the implementation of the protocol because the DUP will veto said uh, implementation, therefore, the aftercrafts. You're on mute, Luke. If you think that sounds galaxy-brained, listeners, it's because it is. I can said to you, it's, it's like one of those Obamacare 
uh, boondoggles that the Republicans would come up with in America. But it's like, if you are the judge here in that case, it's like the mental gymnastics you have to try and undergo to understand exactly what you, what's being argued before you. You've earned your pay that day. <laughs> I, on the other hand, just read Tom McBride. Yeah. As our Republic of Ireland correspondent, Simon. What what make you of what's happening up north? I mean, it's sort of it's one of those strange things. Union Northern Irish Unionism, and we sort of saw a bit of this in 2017 to 19 when the DUP became very important on the Westminster stage. Northern Irish Unionism is not, you know, the same as just being like we like the British government. They they very much are like we would like to be part of the UK, but also quite different to the rest of the UK, please. And that feels to me where a lot of this all roots in its. That's I know. I mean, legally, you know, they, it was all, you know, it was all not. It was all a lot. All a lot of interesting argumentation and stuff that wouldn't have looked out of place in Alice of Alice in Wonderland, but. The reason that they, I think the reason they say this is that they are, they do, I think there is a sense from DUP in particular, that Northern Ireland has a special status within the United Kingdom. And that's where they kind of see it. And they, and they kind of, I think, you know, deep down what DUP want is they want to be able to govern this little bit whilst sort of staying in the United Kingdom. I mean, at least, shit, and I think, I think if the, if Northern Ireland ever joined the Republic, the shit that Sinn Féin would, you know, they would turn up and go, "Oh, we've joined a quite right, a quite right wing, so a quite right wing, economically liberal um, country." That's not quite what we were expecting, but at least they have the coherence of having a party on both sides of the border and can campaign for, you know, yeah, good campaign. The, the, the two sides of Sinn Féin disagree with each other all the time. They just pretend they don't. Mm. Yeah, this is it. This is why Northern Ireland. This is why, like Northern Ireland, is a very unusual I mean, policy. I mean, I- I've said this for a while. What should have happened is Northern Ireland became its own dominion. Like and like that. Probably that would have led to a more coherent answer because the Unionists would have just shut the border down. And Northern Ireland would have been wouldn't have been subject to the common travel area if that had happened, say in after the Second World War when they considered it. The reason why they didn't do that is they don't want to be cut off from British government subsidy. Um, so now you're kind of in this mess. I still think t- today Northern Ireland as a separate crown as like a, a crown dependency um that was in personal union with the british monarchy um you know linked to britain for foreign and security policy um but part of the eea would probably be the best solution for northern ireland um but i think the only way you'd, ev- you'd ever get unionists to agree to that would be if unification was taken off the table which I think in retrospect was a big mistake of the Good Friday Agreement 
it should there should have been something like unification is not on the table for 50 years just to reassure unionists that they don't have to be looking over their shoulder about that mm. i mean i disagree with that strongly but you know well no but why because like I mean, the Republic of Ireland government had to give up a had to give up, you know, clause one of its constitution. You yeah, know, but, I, I think. But Simon, it's not normal for countries to cover other parts of countries. Now we're going to talk about Ukraine, and I'm pretty sure you're going to say Ukraine is Russia is wrong to cover parts of Ukraine. Like, actually, Ireland was being a dick to cover part of another country. When they knew that that part of the, that that country, a majority of that country, did not want to be part of it, like them saying them them not telling, I quote unquote Irish people, Irish nationalists in in Northern Ireland. No, I'm sorry, you're in a minority. You have to make it work in Northern Ireland. That was a dick move. And I think we recognise as a dick move in any other context except Northern Ireland. Like, they're, they're ethnic Russians in the Baltic states. I don't think we'd say, well, it's not, it, it's not fair to the Russian speakers in those countries to expect Russia to forswear ever wanting to reunify those Baltic states with Russia, bearing in mind that those three states were part of the Russian Empire, they weren't, they weren't something that the, the USSR took over afterwards. Like, I, 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 I all, like, you know, Britain did a lot of bad things to Ireland. Ireland, does, Ireland more than deserved its independence come 1922. Um, it's, a, it's a great shame that the 1801 Act of Union didn't work, but it didn't work because of British bad behaviour. But I think Ireland behaved deplorably since 1922 in the way it kind of egged on Irish nationalism in, in Northern Ireland without ever fully committing to it, because deep down it knew it was a bad idea. No, look, I'm not. I'm not going to. You know, I'm. I don't genuinely. I'm not defend. I don't defend De Valera. I never have done. Uh, because yeah, I think you're right. He he was using he was using a promise that he didn't <laughs> want to fulfil. But I think my problem my problem with saying with for saying like this is impossible again is that would just have denied that would just have denied the democratic rights of you know it, basically the situation of the Good Friday Agreement now is basically like look but if the, sorry, sorry, can I, can I just, sorry sorry Simon can I just go there but the whole point of power sharing is you're denied the democratic rights of the unionist majority. But there has to be a quid pro quo. Like, okay, if it's all about democratic rights and majority will, okay, we'll let the unionists run Northern Ireland. If we're saying that's not possible in Northern Ireland, which I agree with, therefore we have to have power sharing, why can't we also have a moratorium just a temporary moratorium, not forever and ever, just a moratorium on any consideration of a unification referendum, bearing in mind that, you know, what's one of the arguments made for unification? 
that, oh, that Northern Ireland's much poorer than the Republic now. But Northern Ireland wasn't poorer than the Republic in the 1970s, or like 1960s. Why is Northern Ireland poorer now than the Republic? Well, part of the reason is, is because they had a bloody civil war for 30 years, because the extreme wing of Irish nationalism decided that they weren't going to take no for an answer. I mean, that's, yeah, that, look, that, that's, the, 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 the causes of the troubles are obviously very complicated, but I think that the way it now, it, the way it sits now, which is basically saying that the, that any border poll, and I, I, I understand what you're saying, and I, th- it, I, I think it's, I, it strikes me that, you, yeah, you're right. You obviously couldn't have had a unionist majority, although a unionist, although you know, unionism is the largest faction. Although that is closing. No, 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 sorry, sorry, sorry. I didn't say you couldn't have a unionist majority. There was a unionist majority. The unionists lost their majority in 2017. Like, I don't think people realise how recently the unionists lost their majority. What I'm saying is, Good Friday Agreement said we you can't have unionists from Northern Ireland anymore. That won't fly because nationalists won't accept it. So I'm saying is that, but that is sacrifice in what we consider democracy. Normally in democracy, the biggest party gets to win. And like, you know, I, I think it's right. And you know, you can't have pure democratic rules when you get into ethnocracy. Um, you have to have a, a version of power sharing. Uh, I, I don't know if I've told you something. I know I've told you, Lou. But like, I, re- I, I haven't met somebody who opposed a Good Friday Agreement at the time. I realised this when I was reading a book about Zimbabwe. Um, and this person was basically explaining that, you know, the, the, the constant attempts of Western governments to impose their version of democracy on Africa always fails in Africa, you don't have ideological parties, you have tribal parties, you have ethnic parties, and so trying to run it through Westminster-style, American-style party politics just leads to winner-take-all battles that lead, no, lead to bad things, leads to like one ethnic group ruling another. But if you're going to say that the, the, the unionists have to give up their majority, why can't the nationalists give up their ability to get unification for 50 years? Because I why, think... not, why not give unionists that breathing space where they can compromise with, with the nationalists, where they can work with Ireland to make Northern Ireland work, rather than constantly worrying that next year there may be a border poll. I think because that, I, so I, I actually think that the current compromise, because there is, a, there is a compromise on both sides, you know, this is what the Good Friday Agreement is, it's a set of compromises that, you know, doesn't please every, anyone, doesn't please anyone entirely, but does stop, because there is a compromise in terms of power sharing that, you know, theoretically, if Sinn Féin win the most votes, if the nationalists win the most votes in a um, in an in a, in a Northern Ireland executive election, they get to be first minister, but they will have to work in tandem 
with the DUP as the DUP does now. Sorry, can you can you're you're doing it again. Will, you're doing it again. Will, shut up. Okay, so there is a, there is a, to me, there is a set, there are a pair of which is that if, which are both basically based on the largest number of votes, which is that Sinn Féin, that if that the largest two parties basically, as you say, give up the right to hold ultimate power because they have to have to share power with the other side. And actually, of course, uh, the idea is that every party, even, you know, relatively minor parties like the Greens or or the Northern Ireland Alliance Party also, you know, have a place in that government. You know, you don't. The idea is you don't have an opposition, although it has happened sometimes. On the other side, the compromise, it seems to me, on terms of the border poll is, is that, yes, you have it, obviously, as an overhanging opportunity, but only in a situation where um, it is proven that the um, proven that basically there is a, you know, Sinn Féin cannot just call a border poll on a Wednesday because they feel like it. It has to be in a situation where there is a majority support for you know a majority support for it and therefore presumably for the idea of moving nations and and the thing that and the different you know like one one of them has a sort of one of them obviously means that you give up this sort of democratic thing kind of permanently because you have to you have to basically allow this compromise to work to allow the day-to-day governance of northern ireland to mean that we don't talk about you know guns and bombs but schools and water bills and the other, but uh, whereas the other compromise, because the, the thing is, you can't be, although they tried the Good Friday Agreement with like choice of passports and things, at the end of the day, you do actually have as a region, you have to say, we are a member of this nation state. So you taking that away for a period of time would essentially lose a community's opportunity for that ambition while saying to, while sort of saying that, you know, the, whilst sort of having the power sharing thing going in. That, I think, would be my answer to your question as a balance of compromises. No, I think, I think you're right in the sense of the Northern Ireland Assembly can't do it by themselves. You have to convince a British Northern Ireland secretary. That, that, that probably is what they thought was a fair compromise. I just feel like maybe even it was just like... 40 years, 30 years, you'd have just calmed Unionists down and they wouldn't have been so defensive. And I think Unionists have always had one eye behind one eye behind their shoulder that hasn't been helpful. Uh, what do you think about all of this, Luke? I think it's quite I think it's quite interesting given what we're going to talk about um, next. I don't I mean, I think you've got to bear in mind that the DUP is not playing entirely straight with this. Uh, what a shock! There is going to be a there's going to be an assembly elections in May at the latest, and the polling is looking pretty catastrophic. And the DUP is bleeding votes to its right to traditional unionist voice. And I think Jeffrey Donaldson has made the perhaps not incorrect calculation that <coughs> the only chance he's got of being first minister is to stop that movement um, so he's trying to out tough tough 
Now, I think that's very stupid because you can't get further to the right than Jim Allister in uh, Northern Irish politics. You simply can't do it. But I think that's... So I think... I think... I think all of this sort of looking at it from the point of view of constitutional principle is interesting. And I don't really have anything to add to what either of you guys have said, but I also think it's kind of beside the point because this is just hardball politics at the end of the day. I think the thing is, um, if I was a DUP, (laughs) they, they tried this in 2017. And all it did was polarise voters in favour of Sinn Féin. Like the problem is, the problem is they can't do it. They can't do a pure deal with with Jim Allister because he'll demand they don't take part in the power sharing. So they've done a compromise where they agree to transfer votes. The th- the thing is, is, the thing is as well. The thing I don't think, the thing I don't think the DUP has thought through it. The TUV, the traditional unionist voice, has up until now been basically a one-man show in Jim Allister. And the thing about Jim Allister is he may be a he may be an extreme unionist, but he's a he's a ferociously intelligent guy. Mm. The problem is, I think once you have, once you actually have a slate of TUV candidates, and once they start campaigning in earnest. I think they are going. They are going to tie themselves in knots. You're going to have all sorts. You're going to have all sorts of weird Protestant fundamentalist religious guff um, swamp their campaign, and I think it. I think it will collapse. I think there's a very real chance that whatever, that whatever momentum Alistair's picks, picks TV has picked up is just going to collapse because these people. The candidates he's got running with him really are a collection of, you know, the odd, you know, to use the 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 expression that was used about Donald Trump's White House staff, it really is a collection of the island of broken toys. Well, it's not just that, but as well, like, the DUP is meant to be the party of Northern Ireland, you no, know, because it's the leading party of unionism. This is the first time unionists have collapsed the Assembly, I think, this collapsed the executive. It's, it's usually been... Um, no, I think no, to a lie. No, think, I'm going to say that's not right. I think they trembled at it once. The the DUP did it once. No, where they had like a rolling series of resignations. But it, no, no, but it, that's the point. They didn't collapse the executive. Okay, they did that? They 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 appointed Arlene Foster as temporary. Um, like they did everything but collapse the executive. Okay, I, I think trembled did it once. Over decommissioning, which, which was a big issue, but like it goes back to what Sam O'Brien says in his book. You know, if 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 you can't make Northern Ireland work, then what's the alternative? The logical alternative is unification. Yeah. Um, so no, so but speaking yeah, of unification, I'm well, going to just, just, just very quickly, sorry, we should say, so Paul Given has resigned. There's not going to be an early assembly election. The executive will continue in this kind of beheaded state. Um, I think there's negotiations to try and get the coronavirus legislation through. 
to kind of remove the barriers. Um, and uh, we'll see what happens. Now, Luke, you've been a bit cranky on this podcast, waiting to get to the firework factory. How goes life in the Ukraine? Okay, now I'm going to try and... No, no, sorry, I, I'm going to interrupt you because this is important. No, Simon, don't interrupt <laughs> Luke. You don't no, no, me. I'm interrupting you because I'm, I'm not going... It's called Ukraine. It's not called the Ukraine. Yes, that, that is important purpose. in this context. I, I, I noticed... I know it's Kiev Luke. to rhyme with Steve, not Kiev as well. Oh, I didn't But, 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 but you, you don't have chicken thieves. That's because chicken Kievs are Russian. They were just made for people who come back from Kiev. Yeah. Let, 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 sorry. Let's anyway, not actually, talk actually, about Actually, Simon, can I just you say, want, can actually, I just Simon, say, you want to so, go so, first? You've got, you've been working, you've, so, so, you so, were working with uh, the Ukrainian government at one point. I think. Um, so, for legal oh, yes. reasons, not quite. Uh, no, so, I mean, I can say this now because we don't work with them anymore. Um, and I, I never really, I didn't talk about it a lot because it was all slightly complicated in terms of our, the logistics of it. But um, yeah, for a couple of, for a couple of years, I worked with the National Bank of Ukraine. So the Ukrainian equivalent of the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve. Uh, now, specifically, this was on uh, supporting legal action they'd taken against an oligarch um, who'd taken over, who'd, who'd basically run the largest commercial bank into the ground. <laughs> a very complicated story that I, that isn't relevant. Really but I think, like, the thing I would say now, and I, I can't, I'm not going to claim that I can offer any particular analysis of, like, what's going to happen or the military outcomes or any of that. And that's sort of one of the things I, I'm interested to hear from, from the other two of you. But I mean, I think for me, you know, it's, it's a really straight, for me, Kiev is a lovely, it's a genuinely delightful city. It's a city I, I visited for work. Um, I would be very, I, you know, I, 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 having visited, I was like, oh, I hope I get to come back here as a tourist. You know, there's, it really, it seemed like a really, it's like, you've done Prague, you've done Budapest. Hey, Kiev, that's an interesting place. You know, five years, four years ago, it hosted the Champions League final. You know, it, you know, Donetsk in 2012 hosted the semi-final of the UEFA European Championship. This was a, you know, this when we are talking about what we are, about what may about to happen, we are talking about a country that, you know, although whether whether you know we can have a debate about you know whether it should be involved, whether it should be you know looking toward EU or NATO membership, but like it was undoubtedly seen as a as a nation state that was on the world stage that was doing you know was doing ordinary normal things. What's that thing of um, didn't Yugoslavia host the Winter Olympics? Just before yeah, yeah, in, in the war. Not, not just not before, quite. Yeah. It was 19, 1984. I mean, it yeah. does mean, and because uh, one of the things that happens when the Winter Olympics comes around is you normally get those really heartbreaking pictures of the um, the luge of the bob track at, at Sarajevo, which is based, which became essentially a battleground during the war in the mid nineties. Um, but like you know, I have I have because you know you keep in contact, you know, clients you work closely with, you know. You see, keep in contact with it. You know, I have some a friend, someone who is a friend on Facebook, who we, I, I follow on Instagram, who is living in this country. You know, a country where I don't, we don't know what's going to happen. But you know, the worst case scenario, they could be living through a war zone, and so I'm not sort of, I can't sort. Of, you know, this is a difficult and complicated topic. But to me, I, th I the thing I find quite 
yeah, I find I find it I find it worrying. I find it scary. You know, we are there is a potential, you know, war which the West is opposing with, you know, led by a power with nuclear weapons. Um, but at the end of the day, a country which is vast, by the way, and the, the stat I read was if you in, inside Ukraine, you could fit. Uh, the the entire United Kingdom, the entire of Germany, and have enough space to, to the city of London as well. Um, it's, the it's, largest, a, it's the largest country in Europe. I think, depending on how you define Russia, because if you say that... Yeah, European it's, the, it's the largest country entirely in Europe. Yeah, yeah that's right. That, that I wouldn't... Uh, yeah, that. Yeah. But this is, a, th- yeah, this is a country that people went to on, we- on you know, weekend trips. Slightly more adventurous ones, maybe, than, you know... The standard is, you know, but this is not a country that I was ever worried about. I, I can tell you now, actually, the time I went to Kiev, you know, I, I, my colleague was like, oh, I've got to do some work. But, you know, you should go and have a look around it, you know, go and walk to the Maidan Square where the Orange Revolution happened. You know, not in a kind of like, you know, oh, you need to. This was like half ten at night. It was, you know, on my own as, a, yes, OK, as a as a as a white bloke, but, you know, not as a not as a particularly physically strong person by any means, but like, you know, oh, just go and have a wander around the city centre of Kiev in 2018. You know, this is not, and we are now talking about this potentially being the site of a major European war. And and so as well as being worried for the people I've worked with, for a country I have, you know, I feel a fondness toward because, you know, I had, I, I thought what we're doing was useful, if nothing else. I think there's also just a deep feeling of it being incredibly surreal. Mm. That's that's yeah. my that's my kind of not particularly insightful thought. Well, I mean, I think there's a thing as well. It's like coming from you, Simon. You're a bit too young to really remember Bosnia. Yeah, I remember Kosovo. I wouldn't. Yeah, I think Bosnia was one of those things that, like. I was vaguely aware that it was a bad thing happening in the news. So, yeah. But, yeah. Um, and, I, and obviously, I don't know about you, Luke, but I'm too, remem- I'm too young to remember it happened. It started. I remember the siege of Sarajevo. Do you remember that weird thing where Paddy Ashdown talked about how President... Um, oh, what's his name? It's not Truman, but it's like Truman. Truman. Truman, where he had drawn on a napkin, a partition plan for Bosnia between Croatia and uh, Serbia. And this became like the, 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 the thing, I think it was the summer of 94 or 95. This became the way to solve the Bosnia crisis. Do, do you remember, do you remember, I mean, this would probably be a bit early for you, because I can remember this just, do you remember at the very beginning of it, where you had that really extraordinary episode where Alija um the the president of Bosnia, got basically he was flying back from an international summit, and the Serbs had captured the airport, so they basically took him hostage. No, I don't, I don't remember that one. That would be uh, they basically took him hostage, and you had this extraordinary thing where like there was a Yugoslav army barracks in the center because this was right as it was kicking off. There was a Yugoslav army barracks in the center of Sarajevo, and so in retaliation, the the Muslims blockaded this barracks and essentially took like four hundred soldiers hostage. And you had the, and the reason I remember it was because the 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 commander of UN forces 
in Bosnia, a Canadian general called Mackenzie, I don't remember in this much detail, I've been reading about it recently, had to call um, the six o'clock news to like, it was basically using the six o'clock news as a negotiating forum. I remember, so this would be, I think this would be 95 <laughs> or 96 when I was in year five doing show and tell. My show and tell was about the war in Yugoslavia and the war in Bosnia. And, I, and the teacher, for some ungodly reason, let me go on for 50 minutes. And so I did, as a 10-year-old, I did a 50-minute talk on the war in Bosnia, which is hilarious, because, like, I don't care about wars now. I find them boring. But, uh, yeah. You see, that's the difference between us. You did Bosnia, I did the Battle of Tobruk. <laughs> but, you know, back then, you know, as, as a child, I had my little army men, bucket of army men. Did, and... did, did, yeah, bucket, did, did you use maps? Because this is one of the things I, I, I still do. I loved a good map. <laughs> I do love that. Gotta love it. Um, but yeah, anyway. No, but yeah, no, so it's like, you know, it's, it's weird, like, because like, this is, you know, you had the situation in Bosnia. Um, like, Bosnia, that's, that's, you know, you, you really are getting outside of normal Europe. <clears throat> that, like, Croatia, Slovenia, didn't really have that great a war. Like there's a brief war with between Croatia and Serbia, or Croatia and Yugoslavia. Be, be there. Now you're thinking you're thinking of Slovenia. The Croat-Serb war went on for quite a long time. It wasn't that long though compared to Bosnia. No, the Slovenia go away without hardly any war. But like yeah, that Croatia, was like ten days. Croatia-Serbia war was like what less than a year. Yeah, and then it, obviously it reignited in 1995. Yeah, because of Bosnia, but like. Um, you you then had the various unraveling of Serbia, so Kosovo, um, the Kosovo uh, war then bled into uh, former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. You then had peacefully we had Monte Montenegro leave Serbia, which you know that that's the equivalent of like Jersey leaving the UK. Um, you know that's that's when you know you're falling the hard times. Um, but you've not really had anything serious militarily in like core Europe, and even Croatia, Slovenia is pushing it in terms of it being core Europe, even though they were part of the Aust the Austrian Empire. What since since the USSR went into um, into Hungary. Yeah. That'd be the last major thing in, in what people recognise as core Europe. Well, and if you can do it in that way, Czechoslovakia in 1968 as well. Yeah. So, this is big. How, Luke, do you want to give us a sense of how big the build up on the Ukrainian borders are? And we should say borders because it, it, it the Russians. The Russia surrounds Ukraine. They've also roped in Belarus, and uh, Belarus is not refusing p passage as they have done previously. So the Belarus border has also uh, got troops massing on it. As yeah, well. and there's a huge, huge 
series of joint exercises between the Belarusian and Russian military. That means that the Russians have just poured troops and particularly aircraft into, into Belarusian airspace. Okay, I'm going to try and keep this. I'm going to try and keep this not. I'm not. I'm going to try not to wander too far into. I'm going to try and make this not too technical. But if I am getting a bit IR geeky, I need you guys to pull me back. Oh no! So, so Luke, are you asking us to interrupt you? I'm asking you to pull me back. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, what will? What? what Essentially, the build-up that the Russians, um, the Russians currently have on the Ukrainian border is um, 100 battalion tactical groups, which, to put it another way, that's roughly 50% of the regular Russian army. You add to that units that are still in train heading from Siberia, heading from Siberia and the Pacific. Um, regions of Russia, by this time next week, about two-thirds of the Russian regular army will be on Ukraine's border. Now, this has been a build-up that's happened over a period of months. It started at the end of last, started at the end of last year. In fact, it started a little bit earlier than that. Um, this is a build-up that, uh, that has resulted in a well-balanced force of Russian um, troops opposite the Ukrainian border. What I mean by that is there's an, there is the kind of balance you would expect between artillery, infantry, tanks, support units, medical engineering, um, logistical intelligence. Isn't that also... Crowd control troops. Yeah, there is all. There is also there is also military police and various kinds of paramilitary police as well. In other words, this is not necessarily the kind of force you would expect to see even on a large scale exercise, because generally, <coughs> large scale exercises generally tend to favour one particular branch of service. So you have a force that is very heavy in tanks or very heavy in artillery or very heavy in infantry. The, the kind of joint arms exercises you get don't tend to be of this scale because it's really expensive and logistically difficult to do. So what we're seeing is a force that is balanced in a way that you would expect um, or that you would associate with imminent military action. Um, we're talking somewhere, the figure most widely quoted in the press is 130,000. <clears> I would say the actual figure is probably closer to 150 to 160,000 because that number that you see in the press often doesn't take account of support troops. Um, you'll oh, see. We should also remember they've, they've got troops in Ukraine itself. That yeah, we're not. There. We're not counting the various separatist militias. Um, and there's, there's an enormous buildup of naval forces and, and Russian Marines in Crimea, as well as a large buildup of regular infantry, of regular army forces in Crimea as well. Now, the thing is, 
the Russians are either going to have to go, they're either going to have to back down and disperse this force, or they're going to have to launch some kind of military action. They're going to have to make that decision relatively soon. Um, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do think I would say with a good degree of certainty, we will know what's going to happen by this time next week. Either an invasion, either some form of invasion will have taken place, or Russian or the forces Russia has assembled on the Ukrainian border will could start I, to be pulled back. Could I just say a week on Wednesday? I would say by the well, whatever, but I would say by this time next week. The reason I say is like because you're we, thinking of the Olympics, aren't you? I'm thinking of the Olympics, so, so we, we should explain this. The reason why the American society is about a possible invasion is um, there is a, the Olympics basically insists upon a, um, a ceasefire, global ceasefire. So there's meant to be no war whilst the Olympics happens because it goes against the principle of competing against nations for nations to be competing against war in war um, whilst the Olympics is going on. And um, the idea the, I think the Americans had, their intelligence had, is the Russians may break this global ceasefire as a way of catching the Ukrainians off, off guard. Obviously, the Russians technically are not taking part in the Olympics, it's the Russian Olympic Committee rather than Russia itself, uh, due to anti-doping reasons, which is hilarious because one of their ice skaters has potentially been done for doping yet again. Um, so I, I do feel like there's a chance the Russians observe that window and they go just after it. So I, I would say no war by, certainly if, if, if in two weeks' time they're still not invaded, then they're not invading because they're all out of time. And like apparently in, with Ukraine, you ID, obviously you don't go in the dead of winter, but you also don't go... Yeah, that was a point I was going to be making. You don't, you don't, you don't want to be you don't want to be going during the spring when there is a thaw on because that's going to really hamper movement. Yes. So like the time, um, and, the time and, to go is now. Yeah, and the more and the more pra the, the more practical the more practical reason to to say that we're now in the end game of whatever this is is you simply can't keep the number of troops the Russians have in the field living under canvas in February in Russia and Ukraine. Because the build-up, the build-up of Russian forces has now reached a point where there aren't, where there simply aren't, where there simply isn't enough space in terms of, you know, barracks, in terms of brick, in terms of hard buildings to actually um, to actually accommodate everybody. So you've got large, you've got large, you've got large numbers of you've got large numbers of men living in tents in the middle of a, in well the tail end of a Russian winter. You simply can't keep people in that condition for very long without them lose without them losing combat effectiveness. To say not to say nothing of the vehicles 
that are going to, that if you don't use them, are going to need to be stood down and serviced. Um, so one way or another, we will shortly know it know how this is going to play out. Now, I've talked about the re I've talked about the the build-up that the Russians have undertaken. <clears throat> there are some reasons to doubt that this is actually the prelude of an invasion. And again, <clears throat> I don't mean to get too technical. And obviously everything I'm saying is based on open sources available to everybody. So I've not got any kind of I've not got any kind of insider knowledge. But for me, looking at this as a military historian, the force that the Russians have accumulated to me looks a little bit like on air defense units. That is to say, anti-aircraft anti missiles, anti-aircraft guns, specialist units whose job it is to engage aircraft. Now, that may be because the Russians have calculated that their own air force and their own integral air defense systems, i.e., the air defense troops that uh, operate within ordinary infantry and armor battalions will be enough to deal with any you, Ukrainian. You think they may be them back in case there's airstrikes and retaliation? Possibly. But yeah, the, the one th I was saying a minute ago that it was well balanced. The one thing I think is lacking is air, def is air defense unit. There has been some question from people whose opinions I value very highly as to whether there are enough medical, as to whether there are enough medical personnel to deal with the likely casualties of military action at this kind of scale. And the other, the, the other two things that, that I think count against this being an imminent invasion is, I'm not seeing much evidence of Russia mobilizing reservists, which, if they mean to occupy large parts of Ukraine, they will need to do, because as I said, this um, force they've established, or is already over half the army, will, could rise to two thirds of the army. So they're gonna need to mobilize reservists in order to occupy territory. There simply aren't enough regular troops left to do that. And I don't see any evidence of a large scale call of reservists. I also don't see the Russian transport system. Sorry, sorry, Luke. Can I just go in there? So we should take that. So in terms of occupation, so Matthew Glazius had a good article um, about how you know Russia shouldn't invade Ukraine. And one of the things he pointed out was the common ideas, like you mentioned, is it something like 40, uh, one soldier for every 40 civilians. Yeah, is a one ratio. soldier or policeman, generally. Is what they think you should have for an occupying army. Yeah. Um, and so, like, he had a, he got his, well, he got his intern to do a chart. So, Soviet-Afghan war, you had uh, just under 22. Uh, so I'm going to say soldiers, it's easier. 22 soldiers per civilian. Um, U.S.-Iraq war, you had just under 11 soldiers um, per civilian. Afghanistan war, you had just over 10. Vietnam war, you just had over 6. Rush, a perspective Russia-Ukraine conflict, 
based on the troops they have mobilized already, oh no, this is population, population ratio. So this is population, so like kind of using that as a, as a, a rough metric. For Russia, Ukraine, it's just over 3.5, like it's 3.54. So like this... Does that assume that they would try and occupy the entire country? Well, well this is a question which we'll get to. But in terms, like, I, I think the thing to make it, what this makes clear is, this is such a big country you're trying to occupy. Like, this really hasn't been tried in, I, I suppose, the, the, the two Vietnam wars, the, 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 yeah, the American mean, and then the Chinese Vietnam wars, which everybody forgets the Chinese one, um, they're probably the closest we've had in modern history of a major power trying to conquer a pretty s- substantial country in its own right? The one thing I will say is there is a scenario, there's a scenario, and this may be the more likely scenario of military action happens, where the Russians don't try and push on and occupy the whole country. They occupy a swathe of eastern and southeastern Ukraine up to the right bank of the river Dnieper, which would give them a real, which would give them, it would split Ukraine, <clears throat> split Ukraine more or less in half, and it would give Russia a really easily defensible frontier. But um, that, but that would, but you would be into Western Ukraine. But I think, but definition. I think the, the the calculation there would be that you would have enough pro-Russian, you would have enough people within that population who were pro-Russian, that you could form, you could form sort of Ukrainian-Russian militias. Oh, uh, no, I get that, but like, because I, 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 okay, I, I should, can I put my t- cards on the table, Luke? Go on. I believe in partition. I don't know whether this is a Brit in me, but God damn it, I believe in partition. Um, I don't know what, what bush to the blood we had in our heads when we agreed to merge British Somalia, with Italian Somalia, but look, that's what happens when British people don't partition countries. Wackiness ensues. West Indian Federation didn't work, you know. Partition is the way. Partition is the truth. Um, um, but look, look, clearly, Western Ukraine wants to be the type of country it can ever be. Um, with Eastern Ukraine, um, with Russia as it is. So why not have partition? Have a Western Ukraine that gets to be part of the EU, gets to be part of NATO, and then you have Eastern Ukraine that can be part of Russia. Everyone happy. Ah, no. Because actually, the typical definition of Western Ukraine is both sides of that river. There is no way you can have a reasonable partition of Ukraine that Russia would accept because it would leave itself. Because like the minute you partition Ukraine, the bit of Ukraine that doesn't go to Russia is going to join the EU, is going to join NATO. But like Russia's still going to have the same security concerns because it's still not going to have defensible border. 
what you're going to be left with, like even like the typical Western Ukraine is, I mean, maybe it might be different now due to the war, but as of like 2010, Western Ukraine is was poorer than Eastern Ukraine because that's where all the industry is. Like Western Ukraine is basically farmland and Kiev. So partition is probably not a answer. Like it's a good answer for the Russians, particularly if they take it up to the to the river you're describing. <laughs> but what you're left with is honestly, it's such a rump basket case. I'm not sure what you do with it. Like, you know. Do you go to Poland and Lithuania and ask to reform the Commonwealth? I don't know. What do you think, Simon? Actually, I mean, sorry, I, Wolf, there, were just, there in... were just two more. Sorry, there were just two more points I wanted to make, and mm. then we'll bring Simon in. The other, th- the, the other two, the other two reasons why I think they give me pause to think that we're in, about to see an invasion is. Any conflict between Russia and Ukraine, the only thing you can, the only thing you're going to be able to compare it to in the initial stages are the various Arab-Israeli wars of the 60s and 70s in terms of two adversaries with large armed forces fighting a conventional war with relatively modern weapons. And the lessons we sort of took from those conflicts is the modern armies consume fuel and consume ammunition <coughs> at truly astonishing rates. Modern weapon, modern weapons are very heavy, are very heavy consumers of ammunition compared to the sort of World War II um, counterparts. The point is, I've not seen the kind of disruption, I've not seen anybody report the kind of disruptions you would expect to the Russian civilian transportation system, particularly road and rail. If the Russians were bringing forward, if the Russians were preparing to invade, because the Russian army, like all modern armies, uses a just-in-time logistics system like your local supermarket does. So what you would be expecting... Sorry, 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 one second. Simon, who would win the war? Sainsbury's or Tesco? (laughs) Um, I mean, Tesco is just a lot bigger. And, and, you know... (laughs) Well, no, I think you're wrong because Tesco's have just said that they're no longer resupplying at night. (coughs) So they've given the the tactical advantage to Sainsbury's there. Anyway, so so what is So what what you would be expecting if you were about to see an invasion is that the Russian civilian transportation sector would be being throttled in order to create space for the resupply resupply of fuel and ammunition that an invading army would need. You'd be seeing wide-scale throttling back, particularly of the civilian railway network, because one of the weaknesses the Russian army still has is that it's overwhelmingly reliant on, on... our rail freight to move large amounts of to move large amounts of equipment, um, and the second um, and the second thing in a related point is I would have expected to see some form of petrol rationing um, being introduced in 
in Russia because, uh, like you said, well, the, Ukraine is a huge country, and this will be a highly mechanized. This will be a highly mechanized conflict. Um, so I would have now. It is possible that they're kind of throttling civilian fuel supplies without actually formally introducing rationing. But I, I mean, I, I keep hearing about how the Americans and their cars and gasoline. Do you think the Russians <laughs> are turning their gas into gasoline and using that? Oh, wait a minute. Is, is that just petrol? Is that not made from gas? Yeah. Well, why do the Americans call it gasoline? That makes no sense. Whatever. Um, so, yeah, I, I, genuine, I, genuinely, I genuinely don't know what's about to happen. But either, Vlad, in, in the next week to 10 days, one of three things has to happen. There is the, out, there is the re-emergence of conflict. Uh, Vlad, Vladimir Zelensky backs down or Vladimir Putin backs down. Um, and I have no idea which of those three will happen. And if anybody does, if anybody tells you that they do, they're a liar. Mm. Uh, so, or they have access to more intelligence than I do. So I, so like, I, you go, Simon. Yeah, I, I suppose to me, like, as as I think you've very neatly put in, we, this is all this is all questions and no answers, which is someone who's, who's done too many quizzes I'm obviously uncomfortable with. But, like, I'm going to throw a few, a few more in there. Like, we know the actual reason Putin's doing this, which is basically that... He, Do we? Well, I think the sense that... Well, yeah, that may... Okay, well, actually, let's... Okay, yeah, let's... Okay, so, so, so just, so, like, um, just to put my cards on the table, um, now, you have experience of Ukraine, Simon. Luke, you have knowledge of IR and military tactics. Um, I have blinding anti-Americanism, which surely means I win all internet debates about foreign policy. Um, but, like, in all seriousness, like, I, as I said, like, as I said earlier, like, I, I've, been, I've always been sympathetic to the idea of partition, but partition only makes sense if all Vladimir Putin, like, a realistic partition that could be anything that Ukrainians would accept, you know, anything other than a Carthaginian peace. Um, that, that only works if all Vladimir Putin cares about is access to Black Sea because the bits, no, you know, eastern southern Ukraine would give him that. It would not give him a defensible border from the West. Um, you would have to do what you were saying, Luke, which is take it all the way. What was the river? The River Nipa. The River Nipa, which would just that's that's actually quite deep into Western Ukraine. Well, that's the one that flows through Kiev, right? Yeah, it would we wouldn't hit Kiev, right? No, it would be a bend like. You want to take? It's called the the Great Bend of the River. Basically, this is sort of looking back on World War Two. It took the it took the Red Army it took the Red Army um, several months at full pelt to break to break a determined German defence at that line, 
uh, it's very, it's very, it's very it's, even with modern weapons. It's very good geography to defend, um, but the Nipa sort of bends away. It, it comes round in a crescent, so the, the the river that goes through Kiev is a tribute is a tributary of it. It's not the main river. But like, but basically, like the the fair division of Ukraine is like 50 15 population but at least before the 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 current war would have been really upsided in favor of Russia in terms of gdp if you give russia the bits on the bits on the other side on the Dnieper that the bits of western ukraine they want as well that you no know, that then becomes like the, what you're left with is like a rump statelet that would probably need, honestly, would probably need to be put into the EU as quickly as possible to stop it just falling prey to Russians soon after anyway. Like, you know, like it probably isn't sustainable as a state in of itself without immediate intervention. So like, yeah, if he's concerned about the Black Sea access, which might be what he's concerned about, because obviously, you no, know, the whole thing about taking over Crimea and the naval base in Sestopol was what the, this crisis began, began with. Then a partition is a solution. If it's that he wants a defensible border between him and NATO, then partition isn't a solution. And you then have to look at what is sometimes called finalization. Luke, you explained quite rightly that's wrong because there was never a formal treaty or formal. And also, what it was changed over time as well. What people actually mean is Austrianization of Ukraine, where there is like a formal announcement that um, the country will stay neutral. But even that, you know, like, no, Austria didn't. I mean, people always forget. People always talk about enlargement. You know, you had the initial six of the European Union. You then had ourselves, Ireland, and Denmark. You then had the the three former fascist countries in terms of Greece, um, uh, 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 Portugal, and Spain. But then you had Switzerland, Finland, and Austria, the three former neutral countries. You know, like in in a in a Cold War, neutral countries couldn't join the EU. Um, so that means Ukraine can't join the EU. Well, in the fullness of time, that means it just sucks back into Russian orbit. So yeah. Simon, thoughts? Yeah, I think that's my I mean that's my assumption. That to me, that's what that is what I think Putin wants, which is basically a, he wants to basically put Russia and Ukraine into Russia's sphere of influence. Um, so that, that's my assumption that might be incorrect. My, my, my question is, like, even if, you know, we understand, even if we can argue about his actual sort of reasoning, like, what are the Casas Belli going to be? You know, what are they actually? What are they going to claim is the well, reason? I mean, I mean, I, th- I think this, I think this is actually where the US, uh, where the US and the UK and uh, 
some of the, and, and the rest of Europe is actually playing a really quite a constructive role because the the thing is the US the US US and to some extent UK intelligence agencies have been incredibly forward in releasing information and I think the purpose of that is to deny Putin a casus belli because there have been you know the the the, the the CIA's released this footage that they say is sort of fake Russian propaganda demonstrating some like Ukrainians massacring some Russians. That may have been that may have been the course of battle. I actually think actually think uh, one of the interesting things about this crisis is the US in particular may finally be getting its act together when it comes to dealing with Russian misinformation just by releasing a ton of actual intel of actual. Um, sourced intelligence, they may be denying Putin a casus belli. I mean, I suppose the follow-up question to that is, I mean, we can all, you know, I'm sure that will lead to people condemning it, but with the best will in the world, literally, people condemning wars is all very sad, is all very, you know, yeah. you know, declaring a war illegal is a problem in a, in a democratic state, as Tony Blair, to some extent, discovered. But like, what he did get reelected. Like, yeah, that's why I said to some extent. Um, like the question at the heart, of, the question is like, what if if Russia basically just invades because on a whim, which is broadly, I think, what you're saying would happen if that were to happen like what do you expect the international the like the international reaction to be and what do you think and how do you think that and would that make any genuine difference well let me talk a let me talk a little bit about what i would expect a conflict between ukraine and russia to look like because i think i think that actually sort of that actually sort of goes to the question a bit so the problem <laughs> The problem the Russians have got is that they have no hope of achieving tactical surprise now. And that actually, because of the conflict since 2014, and because the, this build-up of forces, because it's so large, it's also been relatively slow, the Ukrainians have had time to build up really quite dense belts of defensive fortifications. and sorry, sorry, uh, just a quick trenches. question on that. Just a quick question okay. on that. Pardon? Do you not think the Ukrainians know war is coming, the Americans exaggerated, suggests that they, they don't believe those defences? Like, they, like you, you compare them to Taiwan. I know, like, Taiwan's a bit of a basket case. But, like, Taiwan, you know, they will, they will raise a bloody flag when they think China's encroaching yeah maybe. ukraine i don't know ukraine I, you want to send ukraine's beaten before this is for good you gotta remember this is not actually a anti-russian government in kiev no this is a government that was re-elected on <laughs> on the promise i'm not sure repair. i no, no, i don't i don't mean it's a pro-russian government mm. what i mean is like they were trying to get a third way they're like let's go beyond the arguments of the past let's try and repair relations with russia yeah no that's fair um well you i mean and you, you say that you say that well 
the Ukra- the Ukraine the Ukrainians have fought long and hard and have paid an, a high price to fight separatists backed by Russia. So I don't see why they wouldn't do that to fight actual Russians. So why? Um, but anyway, you, my point. What, it's, it's a genuine question, Luke. You're the expert. Why are they? Why are they issuing these statements? Why are they saying no invasion is coming I, in? I, I, I mean, I'm not an expert on I'm not an expert on Ukraine. I'm doing this more generally as a from the expertise I have of military logistics. My guess is my guess my guess is twofold. Firstly, they don't want firstly they don't want people to panic, uh, and second uh, and second. Um, secondly, I think. It, secondly, I think it's. Secondly, I think it's because they gen, they genuinely believe it. When you've been li- when you've been living with um, a Russian backed separatist movement on your territory for as long as the Ukrainians have, the, you've got to remember the Ukrainian government has lived under threat of Russian invasion since two thousand and fourteen. Anyway, if I could get. If I could get back to my original point, um, which is that that the Ukrainians have built up quite a dense belt of defences on the on the frontier and on the line of control between themselves and the separatists. Um, so, if a com- if a conflict breaks out, how I would expect it to start is. I would expect to see massive Russian cyber attacks that drew no distinction between private and public um, services. So I would see, I'd, I'd expect to see pretty much um, indiscriminate cyber attacks on Ukrainian power, gas, um, transportation network, the health, the healthcare system, pretty much every, pretty much everything. That runs a computer and has a Ukraine that runs by computer and has a Ukrainian IP address. I would also expect to see sort of several days of airstrikes, drone strikes, and missile strikes with the Russians using the their Iskander surface-to-surface missile to basically try and pulverize as much of the transport network as humanly possible. I'd expect, but I'd then expect to see a period actually of pretty static um, fighting because the Russians are going to have to use, the Russians are going to have to use a lot of heavy artillery and a lot of airstrikes to try and break this this defensive system that the Ukrainians have on their frontier. Um, and that may that may take that may take that may take the Russians that may take that may take the Russians several weeks. And you're also going to get to a situation very quickly where you see a lot of urban fighting. So how this answers your point, Simon, is that I would expect to see enormous civilian casualties pretty much from the outset. And Really, really heavy loss of life all the way around. I think you could easily, I could easily see a scenario where you have ten. And it gives me up. I, I hate to to say this, 
But I could easily see a scenario where in a few weeks, where in a week or so of fighting, you could easily have a kill, you could easily have a casualty number that runs into five figures, maybe even, maybe even six. Um, the point is that this will be, that should this happen, it'll be like nothing Europe has seen since the end of the Second World War. And that will condition the reaction of the outside world. So I honestly don't think you can say too much about what the outside reaction will be because we won't have seen anything like this since our grandparents. The thing is... The one thing I I think you almost certainly will see is a massive NATO mobilisation to reassure Poland and the Baltic states. And the one Beyond thing that, I'm not sure what the, the level of reaction will be. The one thing I'll just say is that massive reaction may cut both ways um, in the sense that it will probably provoke a massive refugee crisis yes. in Central Eastern Europe. Yeah. And we know the Russians, the Belarusians have already used that to try and embarrass the European Union, and they may be hoping that that causes um, Western Europe to kind of fold. Potentially, yeah. But as I say, I, I think probably six figures was an exaggeration, but I could easily see sort of a loss of life in five, a loss of life in five figures within the first few weeks. Um, now, once the once the once the Russians are able to break through that defensive system, and I have no doubt that they will, because the Russians have a huge advantage in what is referred to as long term long range fires, but that's basically a combination of artillery, tanks, drones, and conventional air power. So I have no doubt that the Russians will break that system eventually. Once this becomes a war of movement, once this becomes a war in open country, it's going to be over very, very quickly. Mm. For the re- for the reason, for the reason I just said, the Russians have a massive advantage when it comes to being able to fight a mobile warfare. For, to fight a mobile war, the Ukrainians are only going to be able to offer meaningful resistance while the war is relatively static. That's really, really bleak, and I mean that's not yeah. a sort of. I mean, th- this is th- this is why this is why if you put a gun to my head, I don't. I think, I think Putin will back down simply because even somebody as cold blooded as Vladimir Putin, I really can't believe that he's going to do this because there will be heavy loss of life on the Russian side as well. I mean, trying to take a really densely fortified position, even with modern weapons, is no simple thing. And it's certainly not a bloodless thing. So is he really prepared to contemplate seven, eight, ten thousand 10,000 dead Russian soldiers? Or, Luke, what was the last major war where defence was good? Well, you probably, you probably what you mean with the balance 
you or like, like just a sense of like, when was the last war when you're like, oh, the side defending against the invaders did well? You probably look. You probably looking at the First World War. So, well, no, or the Second World War in terms of as we invaded Europe. Yeah. Well, the Germans did do well, all things considered. Um, but like, you, you look recently, attackers have done really well in war. Yeah, but this, this... and isn't that the type of thing where you usually get these mistakes? Like one of the reasons why the Se- the First World War happened yeah. was due to the uh, Balkan the, the, the Balkan War, where like I mean, it, but I mean, if you if 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 you look at, if you look at the most recent conflict, and actually this is this is useful because you're dealing with militaries that are equipped. Very similarly to the to the Russians and the Ukrainians, and have for that reason have similar doctrine. The war between the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, the Azeris were able to do a lot of the, the Azeris were able to do a lot of damage using drone, principally using drones. They were able to take out a lot of equipment. They were able to put the Armenian army on the back foot, but. Once that conflict deteriorated into trying to literally dig Armenian troops out of trenches, trying to take well-dug-in positions, a lot of that te- a lot of that technology becomes much le- a lot of that technology becomes much less useful. But I, I, I just mean in terms of Putin's mindset, like you've had a lot of wars where people have catastrophically yeah. failed to defend does that make him over eager possibly possibly <coughs> how, well, I, don't, I, don't, how I, don't, I don't pretend to have any insight into what Vladimir Putin yeah. to have anything how would you guys try and avoid this war if you could we're too late now it will either happen or it won't you don't you don't think there's any would, would no if you if you were in charge would you give Putin a guarantee NATO? No, Ukraine doesn't join NATO in say fifty years time. What would you do, son? I really don't know because it goes against my. It really goes against my principles to say that you should ever say to a democratic country that you know it can't make its own decisions. Um, we can make our own decisions. No, what I mean so is we, you can't we can say, say we won't, we won't, but we can make our own decisions whether Ukraine gets to go into NATO. Well, everybody knows that Ukraine's not going to join NATO. Yeah, but it's a difference between saying everyone knows it and writing it down. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I am, I, I was, I was, sorry, sorry, I was worried I about. Know, can I just probe your your thoughts? I'm not interrupting you because you can finish your thing. But like you say, that we can't say to a democratic country what it can do. But like it's an alliance that works with unanimity. Do you think it's fair for NATO to say it doesn't want Ukraine to join? And it won't accept Ukrainian membership? 
I think I I I like Ukraine's quite a long way from the North Atlantic. Yeah, no, no, I, I, but the, you know, I but the but the thing is, the thing is, Will, why would Ukraine want to join a defensive alliance if it didn't feel its sovereignty was being? Yeah, well, no, yeah, I understand why Ukraine wants to join it. No, I get that of the the calculus. And I understand why it'd be a real wrench for them to say they wouldn't join. But, you know, what's in it for us? And obviously, like, this is where my tanky side comes out, because if it was up to me, there wouldn't be a NATO anymore. Um, um, but, like, this is, this is what, like, and, and I think people on, like, my side of the debate have been quite bad at explaining what they meant, what they mean. This is where the idea that this is imperialism comes in, because the idea that the Americans should be able to have allies everywhere is, is like, it's really weird. Like, that's not the way the world has ever worked before. There's always been a recognition that great powers get to have a sphere of influence and it's not nice and it's not fair and I, I really feel sorry for Ukraine that they are bordered um, with Russia in the same way I feel sorry for Ireland that they're bordered to us. But like, this is the way the world works. Um, we will never go to war for Ukraine. The way you know that we'll never go to war with Ukraine is because we're not going to war with Ukraine right now when they're about to be invaded. Like, those troops training the Ukrainian army are being pulled out because a war's about to start, which is usually when you put troops into an ally. Ukraine's never an ally of Britain. It's never an ally of America. The only country it's been an ally of is Germany, and Germany is siding with Russia. Um, we get to choose who our allies are. So, yes, it sucks for Ukraine, but why can't we just say, like you said, Luke, the obvious truth, which is so Ukraine, push comes to shove, we're going to side with not having a nuclear holocaust over your sovereignty. I get what you say. I get what you're saying, Will, and I think this will be my last point. But the problem is that won't be the end of it. Well, what is my point? Draw a clear line. Draw. No, a clear but line. when you say draw a clear line, does Ukraine get to sign um, an association agreement with the EU? Does it get? Does it get to be a member of the WTO? Does it get does it get to set its own economic policy? Because it's all very well saying Ukraine it has to be neutral ground. And I think that's a perfectly justifiable position. What I'm less comfortable with is telling a state that clearly wants to be sovereign, that clearly wants, that clearly does not want to be part of the Russian Federation that it can't conduct its own economic policy, that it can't conduct well, I, its own I, trade policy, that it can't conduct 
its own consular policy, that it can't have its own diplomatic representation. Where does it stop? I, I mean, I, do, we I have, mean do we have to sit back while Ukraine's reabsorbed into Russia against its will? Well, yeah. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't think that's something that we should cheerlead for. But like, no, but like, no. <laughs> Is anybody going to go to war to stop Ukraine becoming part of Russia? If yeah, that but happens? That, yeah, but you, 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 you're posing, you're posing a binary where there isn't. We can. But, but so, so like I would say, in terms of something that we would accept and like legitimate, legitimize and stuff like that. And I, I would like to hear Simon's point after I say this, because I'd be interested to see what Simon thinks. I would say, ideally, you have that division between Eastern, um, East and West Ukraine. And the West go, the East goes to Russia, the West is free to do everything. But I, the Rus- as, we, as we said before, the Russians wouldn't accept that. So then you come into, uh, I think there are two options. One, that version of partition, but with like that bit on the other side of the river Dnieper is like a Rhineland. So like you have Western Ukraine, it can do whatever it wants, but no NATO troops can go in there like it's a demilitarized zone. Um, the other version now is a version of Russianization of Finlandization for the whole Ukraine, but maybe um, you allow it to join the EEA, which doesn't have the security aspects that the EU has. Um, what do you think, Simon? I don't know. I I I would like to sit here and and. You know, we've got you. You've got Will basically being, you know, strikingly realist, and and I'm not saying that there's an outcome that doesn't end up with that. I just, I am, I suppose I'm just a sort of, as I say, I'm not, I'm not the expert on this. I sit here with my gut reaction, which is that we are basically deciding that a nation state that is unlike Russia is a flawed but genuine democracy is basically a misholding it can it's not really it doesn't really have any role anymore because and i'm not saying that i'm probably being over i'm probably being naive i'm probably being rather you know i'm, pro- I'm probably tr- I'm, I'm a child of the 1990s when the fall of the soviet union i think did make it feel like europe could actually get better and it now feels like it's getting worse again but it 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 does feel it's if the the you know the best outcome of this if the best outcome of this scenario is the largest nation in europe in terms of land area um a a nation that is you know has democrat is a is a country with democratic some democratic norms and values certainly many more than russia is basically going to be fed to the wolves, then I find I find that a desperate situation. But I'm not saying that that isn't the outcome that we're going to end up with and the outcome that is obviously better than nuclear apocalypse. I think the other thing as well is, like, I don't know if Luke can hear us, because he's. I think he might be off, um, off finding his laptop charger. 
But the, the other thing as well is I, I, I do feel that we need to move back as the West to actually having quite clear lines of what we are defending and what we aren't. The, I, I get the reason why traditionally the Americans wanted some vagueness because they didn't want to embolden to, uh, like outer allies to act recklessly. But, you know, if Ukraine has no, like, I, I think we, we had a conversation in our group chat about, um, and a friend of ours, Jay, was like, how can you let this happen in our doorstep? And I guess Ukraine's not on our doorstep, it's on Russia's, it's on Germany's. You know, it's, you know, like, there has to be like a, okay, no, this is what we're actually committed to, and this is what we're not committed to. And personally, I would have the boundary be the European Union's borders. But I would also say that the European Union has to actually take seriously its own defence. And I think that would mean confronting Hungary. Um, it would also mean confronting Germany, which is definitely playing a very a, a double game on this issue. Um, obviously, if, if Germany doesn't agree with confronting Russia, then the whole European Union implodes. But I think we actually have to start asking these hard questions. We can't allow this creative ambiguity to continue. And I don't think we can allow it to continue with Taiwan either. Because the, it just leads to these shell games where it's like, well, we've got to do this for this, or we've got to do this for that reason, or this person's being aggressive because they think we need to have their back. Look at our uh, objectives, look at what's important to us, and then work backwards from that. Um, I think, you know, if I, I think I've said this to you, Luke, offline. If I was the Baltics, I'd be really happy. We aggressively join NATO, we aggressively join the EU. Because if they weren't NATO members, if they weren't EU members, they'd be treated just the same as Ukraine. Like that, what's it called? The gap? Sulawaki. You know, like, they are probably even more vulnerable than Ukraine to being taken over by Russia. Um, but, like, you know, the commitments have been made. The bedrock of everyone's security in, in Europe is NATO, is the EU. So, like, they, that has, they have to be protected. But, okay. but, but you go, Luke. Well, hopefully we'll be doing a podcast next week where the world won't... Um, the no, can, can, can I ask you a question I asked Simon before you went away? What would you do now? If you were given a job, I was trying to disuse this. What would you offer the Russians? I don't think I'd offer the Russians anything. <laughs> no, I, uh, let me let me let me let me let me explain. Let me explain what 
I think because I, I because I don't uh, because I genuinely don't think it would make a blind bit of difference. I think Vladimir Putin. We don't know what Vladimir Putin's decision is, but I'm pretty sure he's already made it. And any offer we make at this point is irrelevant. You don't think you don't think he's promised Ukraine can't Ukraine and Georgia. I think what threatens Vladimir Putin has nothing to do with NATO or European security. I think that's buying into Putin's narrative. I think what really threatens Vladimir Putin is the prospect of a, like Simon said, a flawed but a functional and an improving democracy on his Western border. And one which, by the way, Russia shares Russia does share a cultural affinity for. The very exist the very existence of the Ukraine, and particularly the very existence of a successful Ukraine, is a threat to Vladimir Putin. And of and there is no degree of neutralization, there is no degree of uh, Western security guarantee that changes that fundamental fact. Now, is that is that an argument? Like- Partition may work as an offer because partition would carve out the bit of Ukraine is actually close to Russia. But that's not an offer. That's not an offer anybody but Ukraine can make. We can't partition other people's countries. Luke, have no, you, you not, can't have, partition other people. Have you not watched <laughs> the the latest film on Netflix? Influenced by Robert Harris movie. No, I mean, we, in, we, in also, I in mean, a, you, you're British for God's sakes, man. We're British in, all, in, in many in, a country. In, in, in all seri- in all seriousness, I genuinely, I genuinely think this whole thing about NATO enlargement is playing into Putin's hands, and it's it's accepting his narrative of the, the situation, and I don't buy it. Can I disagree? I think it's perfectly reasonable for Russians to say they don't want NATO on their border. Um, there was a little thing called the Cuban Missile Crisis, where it was like, you can't have miss- no, Cuba, couldn't have Soviet missiles um, in Cuba. Like, it's perfectly reasonable for Russia to say. NATO's a defensive alliance, and there were no... There were no oh, come on, there were, there were no non-Eastern European troops in Eastern Europe before Vladimir Putin annexed Crimea. Not a one. Come on. He's, crea- he's created the very situation claiming to be against. Or NATO created the, the situation they claim to be against with, with enlargement. These are sovereign states. They get to decide if they want to be part of NATO. We or not. also they get met, to decide. We also get... We also get to decide how how much we we assure Russia, a country that has much more experience of being invaded and brutalized than the average country. Crimea friggin' river. If you, Was that Crimea me a river? If you, if you want, That's if very you want, offensive after 1844. Like, come on. If, if, you, if, you want, if you want good relations with your neighbours, try not constantly threatening them. Shall, shall you tell Reese Mog or shall I? Anyway, I think we better end this podcast. So it's been quite testy. 
I, I think we all, we talk, it's, it's, there's a yeah. lot of heat. Lot and of hopefully, heat. in the next week, there won't be a lot of heat yeah, specifically hope... coming out of well... Eastern Europe. <laughs> one, one, way, one way or another, this is going to be a really interesting week. Um, so, Lou, what, what, what's your favourite Chris Eaton-Harris drinking story? You know what? I don't think I ever went drinking with Chris Eaton-Harris. So we should, we should say Chris Eaton-Harris is a new toy chief rep. I did get goat drinking with him once, with me and Hamish. That was also the night I met Anna Subri. What I'm <laughs> going to say is, Chris Eaton-Harris came across like a human being. A fairly nice human being. Anna Subri? Well, my yeah, mother always, my mother always said, I've always said, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything else. Will that stand up in court? No, I've tried it. Okay, yeah. She came across like a mad woman. <laughs> anyway, we're going to, on that bombshell, which really isn't a surprise to anybody. Luke, is there anything else you would like to say? No. I'm sorry, Luke. We've got, no, we're out of time. How are you, Simon? No, I need to go to bed. I also have nothing useful to say. We've all learned that for a while. So. <laughs> sorry, Luke. Right. I, 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 I shouldn't have interrupted you. Do you have anything else to say? No. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.